Okay, we are live, and we have with us Alexander Mercuris and the great Robert Barnes. Mr. Barnes, looking very good today. Where can people find you? Well, if they like this uh, beautiful uh, merchandise, they can still get here in the States their Thanksgiving uh, gifts at the uh, Duran shop, because that's where I got the hat and the uh, great uh, sweater, sweatshirt. The, uh, otherwise, you can find all the content at vivabarneslaw.locals.com. And I have that in the description box down below, and I will have that link as a pinned comment as well. The best channel on Locals. And a quick hello before we get started, because we are going to be going pretty much around the globe today. We will start out, I guess, uh, in Argentina and work our way our way up and then east. So uh, a quick hello to everybody watching us on Locals, on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, YouTube, and Telegram. And a big hello and a big thanks to our amazing moderators. Thank you very much for everything you do. Alexander, Robert, because we have so much news to get to. Uh, should we start in uh, in Argentina? I guess that's kind of the big story. What do you say, Alexander Roberts? It's, it's, it's Talk about Mr. Javier Millet. It's certainly a big story. I mean, it's attracting. It's not attracting a huge amount of attention in the British media, but people are talking about it. And of course, the fact that Millet is a friend, or at least I don't know whether he's a friend, but somebody who is, uh, you know, an ally, a political ally of Donald Trump, already makes him in the eyes of some people here. Um, a dangerous man and uh, a suspect and all sorts of things like that. So you get lots and lots of things are being said about him. Now, I'm going to give my, I mean, I Tarpon's work. I, I've been following Argentina all my life, in kind of a way, but never very deeply. This country has gone from one financial crisis to another. Political system there seems to be very dysfunctional. Um, the um, country ought to be extremely rich. It's got a wonderful agricultural land. It's got a wonderful beef industry, uh, cattle industry. Uh, it's got good cuisine, by the way, if you like steak, which I do, by the way, I should say. I've never been there, but Buenos Aires, I'm told, is an extraordinary place. The people are educated. Um, it's got an industrial base, or at least it did. And yet it's never sourced, it's never really worked as far as I can see. It just goes from one period of hyperinflation and debt default to another. And we are in another one now. We have another crisis of that nature going on at the moment. I mean, all of the commentary that I've been reading, one of the things none of them admit to, at least in Britain, is that the current government has failed. I mean, it's failed completely. 120% inflation. Um, a, a deficit that is completely out of control, um, a big, a big recession. And who did they put forward the current government as the man they say should be president? And that is the finance minister who has presided over this mess. Now, it's completely unsurprising that Millet therefore has won. And he is at least offering a solution. Now, I'm not sure that it is a long-term solution. Probably it isn't. 
probably over time it will create more problems. But at least it's a solution. It's at least it's an alternative to what they have at this moment in time. And, you know, um, he says, you know, dollarize the economy. At least that gives you a stable currency. At least that will possibly get the economy working again and people investing. I can see, as I said, that over time, perhaps not over very much time, things will begin to go wrong. But if you are living with 120% inflation, you're not worrying about five years ahead. You're worrying about now. You're going to say to yourself, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to buy things in the shops? What is going to happen to my salary? That's what worries you. So I am not surprised that they voted for him. And, you know, maybe, at least in the short term, it will succeed. And if it succeeds, it wouldn't surprise me because, as I said, you're substituting a disastrous currency for an actual one. And if his political ally, Donald Trump, does get elected next year, who knows? Maybe, just maybe, going forward, it might work. It is a gamble. But in this kind of situation, why not gamble? What do you have to lose? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, he's very much a Trumpish figure. Uh, comes from the populist right that has a, a strong uh, backing in Latin America and Central America, though historically the populism has been on the left. What is fascinating to me is seeing so many contemporary commentators, particularly on the right in America, uh, describe Perón as a leftist. And it's like Perón was a much more complicated oh. guy than just that. Uh, actually, many within my introduction at Yale to I know how populism exists outside of America. Well, it's a Latin American populism. It was a course on Latin American populism by uh, by a professor or associate professor who was actually inclined towards it, unlike every other professor at Yale who thought populism was an evil word, the sign of the second, you know, the, the, the next disaster, uh, was Perón. And, and so we did this deep dive on Perón in Argentina, and I was mm -hmm. fascinated by it. Now, you know, Perón had some other components too. I mean, it was both a pro-labor regime but also conservative on a lot of things. Don't cry for me, Argentina. You know his famous wife, Evita Perón, who had his had her own following, her own persona. She was kind of like Winnie Mandela before Winnie Mandela, except without some of Winnie's excesses, <laughs> which we don't need to get into detail on. Um, you know, she had a different definition of necklacy than a lot of other people. It's the same as some of the Haitian gangs, you know, as it turned mm -hmm. out. But the uh, uh, so you know, a much more complicated history than post Perón a lot of it moved in a much more statist direction mm -hmm. and a more what you could identify as a left direction on certain financial and economic policy. And, and you're right, uh, Alex, but the left and the right have failed in Argentina at different times. Mm -hmm. Argentina's had economic collapse under right-leaning neoliberal governments. It's had collapsing under left-leaning quasi-socialistic governments. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's the... In fact, the only time they had a stable and really good economy was almost a century ago, and uh, and during the period of time thereafter, when it was the par when Buenos Aires was the Paris of South America, and uh, that's you know around the time Perón was in control. I mean, it was so attractive that mm -hmm. uh, there were some Germans after World War II decided to go there and mm -hmm. and, and live there for a little while. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, they might have had other reasons for for wanting to visit the beautiful shores of Argentina, but uh, so. It's not a surprise to me that someone like Malay, he fits, he doesn't fit the, the, the conventional filters and frameworks of the American Western neoliberal elite, the State Department types. They don't understand the guy at all. 
They think this guy's clearly crazy. Look at him. He's, he's wacky. He's weird. He dresses weird. He says things that they can't understand. I don't think the people in the State Department have ever studied Austrian economics. So, I mean, you know, they, they don't know what that means. Like, what in the world is this guy doing? The uh, Giving some of his funny analogies and, and the rest. But he engaged social media well. He's from totally outside the political uh, system there in Argentina, which, as you note, has failed repeatedly by both parties. He's more like the El Salvadoran president than not. And that was, you have the El Salvadoran president, a populist president, who came from the left. I mean, he came from the old left party. And they, both parties conspired against him. And then both of those parties collapsed. And now he's one of the most popular leaders in the world. I mean, I'm a guy with high 80, low 90 approval rating. Some controversies along the way. But that fits that Latin style. Like, you know, the I always said Trump was more of a Latin politician in some respects than an American politician. He's a, you know, the, the, the machismo, the over the top persona The I mean, it, it's like uh, their, their magic realism of their literature. You know, the, the it's there's something over the top and surreal about it. And uh, their politics is naturally inclined. And so Malay was a natural fit. Impressive that he was able to win in the runoff. Mm. Um, the it, it is also interesting in America. The other thing they pointed out in the Argentinian election was it's amazing that they could get all their votes counted in the same night. Uh, <laughs> how is it a country that can't figure out how to count their currency, keeps inflating like 133% every other day, can figure out how to count their votes, uh, but we can't. Uh, so the now I think from a uh, uh, the State Department in the States won't know what to do with him. They'll just kind of pretend he doesn't exist like Bolsonaro, uh, like how the Biden administration treated him. You're right, it's if, uh, if and when Trump is back in, Trump will love the guy. I mean, the guy loves Trump. So, I mean, Tucker Carlson was down there promoting it. Um, so, <coughs> uh, and and help stage and platform him in the United States and in the West. So the, uh, and I think some of the things that confuse people about him, it wouldn't confuse people if they understood the, the long right-leaning populist streak. He's a libertarian, no doubt, uh, but not a pure libertarian. He's more of a populist right figure than a pure libertarian. And so- Hey, like, like they'll be thrown off by him being pro-Israel. Uh, the, uh, I mean, the prone regime was known for helping other people escaping <laughs> the yeah. World World War II, not necessarily uh, uh, Jews, uh, but the, uh, the nature of the Argentinian regime. But the, but that fits within uh, large aspects of the populist right in Latin American tradition. Bolsonaro was a very pro-Israel, so you know the so that really shouldn't surprise people that much. The uh, that he, that he'll love Trump shouldn't really surprise people. Same with Bolsonaro. Um, and the, the currency one will probably throw people off the most. But that's why I recommend uh, people, for me at least, it was a revolutionary perspective that changed everything I understood about global finance uh, that helped forecast what would happen both to the U.S. dollar, whether BRICS was a challenge or not in the current environment and the rest. And uh, that's, you know, Jeffrey Snyder's work on the euro dollar system that the, the he's facing a situation, as you identify, that his these uh, Argentine uh, central bank has been a complete disaster. The dollar and there's nothing, as you guys have talked about repeatedly, nothing destabilizes the government quicker or easier than a collapsing currency. So it's literally the face of the government. And when it has no value or you have no idea what its value is going to be from the one day to the next then that changes the dynamic entirely. And he's got to fix that. And the U.S. dollar is a easy, stable currency that allows him to get rid of the Argentine currency problem and get rid of the Argentine central bank that he despises, mm -hmm. uh, that he sees as 
uh, behind a lot of the problem. So uh, I agree, and I think he wouldn't disagree that there needs to be a longer-term solution than the U.S. dollar. And uh, Jeffrey Snyder's point on the euro dollar is that – and it's a reality of people I know in Argentina that have been reporting on this. The dollar is the real currency anyway. And, uh, and that was the, the currency they want to save in, the currency they want to exchange in, the currency they want to deal in is the U.S. dollar. And this is the main thing that a lot of the BRICS and other people haven't quite wrapped their heads around. And Snyder does a great job explaining this is really a euro dollar. And what he means by that is that these are U.S. dollars that have never been issued by the uh, Federal Reserve of the United States or the U.S. Treasury. They're just balanced. They're, they're in an age of digital transformation of finance. You, they're just uh, entries on, on a balance of a bank. And they can create them themselves. They actually helped start it all after World War II, the 1950s in Europe, mostly in London, by the way, uh, as a way to deal with a lack of liquidity, that there wasn't enough dollars when it was uh, tied to the gold, uh, tied to gold in, in, some, in at least some respects. And that ended up leading to all kinds of problems, Bretton Woods and so forth. So, uh, but I think he's trying to solve the problem that's in front of him, uh, which is complete mismanagement of a state professional bureaucratic class. That It's another example of EU-style governance that continues to fail anywhere in the world that it's present. And it, it failed in El Salvador with the rise of the El Salvadoran populist president. It's failed in Argentina. Uh, arguably, it's failing in other places in the United States as well. And he's just the latest public reaction to the, uh, the inescapable reality of its failure. And it's not necessarily an embrace of Austrian economics. My guess is if you ask the average Argentine voter, they wouldn't be able to give you a, a doctoral dissertation on Austrian economics. Though he does he does a, as good a job as anyone in the history of that economic school mm. thought of popularizing it with colloquial proverbs, which most of those guys, God bless them, can't, you know, I, I, I love Peter Schiff and some of the others, uh, but sometimes they don't have an easy way to make that accessible. You know, the, the uh, Ludwig von Mises uh, and, and, and the rest, there's people that are better at propagating their ideas and better and people that are too esoteric, too academic, too arcane, yeah. too caught up in other things. Um, and so, but yeah, I think now what he can get done, that's a big, big, big question. Mm. Uh, I don't know if there's much he can get done beyond some symbolic things he can do as president. And the Argentine president is a powerful institution. Uh, I don't see why the Brazilian, why Brazil is overreacting the way they are. Mm. I mean, I guess the Brazil president's talking about not having people meet with him or something. It's like, mm. I, I, mm. I just saw the headline, so I didn't see anything beyond that. But I think he fits within a longstanding tradition in Latin American politics re and represents the continued failure of the professional managerial class across the, uh, across the globe. And it'll be interesting to see how he's able to experiment with public policy in ways that might count challenge and counter the uh, institutional control of central bankers. So I'm all in favor of that. I, I, I welcome this election just for nothing else for pure entertainment value. Yeah, I mean, lots of interesting things. Can I just clarify a few points? I mean, the thing about Peron, because Peron's about the one thing about in Argentina that I do know about, because believe, I, mean, I should say lots of Greek people emigrated to Argentina, including some members of my family way back in the 19th century. They we've lost long since lost touch with them, but they you they were familiar with Peron. Peron was a very strange thing. He was both populist left 
and populist right at one and the same time. He was able to look in all kinds of directions simultaneously. And one of the things people don't know is this. Yes, he did. He was a fan of Mussolini. He did allow all sorts of interesting people from Central Europe to come to Argentina after the war. He worked with the Vatican to get the passports and they ended up there. And, you know, we've all heard about that and we all know about it. what most people don't know about is that he was also somebody who worked and this Peron was personally very interested in. He was very keen to get Jewish people to Argentina during the 1930s and 40s. And he made Argentina a major refuge for large numbers of people, Jewish people from Europe. They went to Argentina at that time. That isn't widely known, but it was one of the great places that people were able to escape to. And he welcomed them and he made it possible for them to, do, to come. And Argentine diplomatic missions played a role in facilitating that. So that's just one thing to say. The second thing about Peron, he's had a very complicated domestic policy, very complicated foreign policy. It was a time, it was also his time, was when Argentina peaked. It was lending money to France. It was richer at that time than most of um, Europe was. It was, it, it was comparable in some ways in terms of its affluence to um, North, parts of North America. Now, that was not because of Peron. Argentina had already becoming, been becoming an increasingly prosperous country throughout, you know, before Peron became leader. But it sort of peaked under Peron. Problems really began after he was overthrown. Uh, he came to power through a coup. He was overthrown as a result of a military coup. And he went into exile. And then he eventually did return for a short time as president of Argentina in the 1970s. And one of the things people discovered there, to their surprise, is that the Peronist party had moved significantly to the left whilst he was himself in exile, I think in Spain mostly. And of course, what they discovered when he came back was that without having a very clear strategy or policy, on, he himself was actually quite far to the right. So there was already this tension within Peronism, which you, was, was, visi was visible at that time. And of course, he, then he died in office and his wife, Isabella, tried to take over and she made an even bigger mess. And then, well, made a huge mess. And then the military stepped in, and that was a very brutal dictatorship. And then the military was overthrown in the early 80s, or rather fell in the early 80s at the time of the Falklands War. And we've had endless civilian governments since then, and none has worked. And this is, as I said, this is where my points with Robert's points basically converge. You have a completely broken political system, a completely broken bureaucratic system. Um, the governmental systems that have been created have never really worked at any point since. And it's unsurprising that people want to try something new. Two last points, two important last points. One, Argentina completely cut off from Europe. Very interesting place. I am, as is well known, something of a film buff. What isn't widely known was until about 1960, 
Metropolis, the famous film by Fritz Lang, which has been widely known as just 90 minutes. The whole 150 minute version of the film was uniquely being shown in Argentina. All right up to about 1960 and absolutely nobody knew about it until the last copy was found a couple of years ago in a Buenos Aires museum and it's been restored. And that's the first time since then that we can actually see the whole of Metropolis and it's completely changed most people's understanding of that film. That's one thing, I've even written about that myself actually. So that's one thing. The second uh, um, thing that I wanted to say is about Brazil and why Brazil has reacted so badly about this and why Lula is reacting so badly about this. Well, Lula moved heaven and earth to try to protect the current leftist government in Argentina, with which he has some kind of ideological affinity. He was working towards creating some kind of, um, you know, European Union type setup, if you like, between Brazil and Argentina. He also lobbied very, very intensively for Argentina to enter the BRICS. And though there were many people in the BRICS who were very skeptical about whether a country with 120% inflation and yawning budget deficits should be admitted into the BRICS, it was Lula's influence which persuaded the BRICS in um, August to make the invitation to Argentina. Along comes Millet, no, no common market, no, no European type union with Brazil, um, and Argentina is not going to join the BRICS. And that's a big blow to Lula. He's politically very embarrassed in front of his BRICS allies. As I said, he persuaded them to get the invitation to Argentina. It's now going to be reversed by Argentina. They're probably annoyed with Lula. So it's unsurprising that he is angry. But, you know, he's going to have to accept it because it is Argentina's decision. And I think some people in the BRICS are going to breathe a sigh of relief. Now, Brazil, Argentina have been South America's two big giants until, you know, fairly recently. And they've been rivals and, you know, they're football rivals, amongst other things. So um, unsurprising that, you know, despite what Lula was trying to do, there were the underlying tensions. You've been listening to what Millet has been saying. He doesn't want to have anything to do with Lula. He doesn't want to have anything to do with Brazil. He's very anti-communist. He doesn't like the government of China at all. About Russia, he has nothing unfriendly that I know of to say. So you could see that there is actually a distinction there. I think he'll get on with the Russians. They're not big and particularly important with him, but this isn't an important matter for him. The relations with Russia have been close between Argentina and Russia for quite a long time. The Russians got on with the Kirchners. They got on with the Macri government. They got on with the government that's just been gone. They'll probably get on with uh, uh, Millet as well. This isn't an issue for them. Brazil, China, it's a different story. <laughs> yep. And what's interesting to me is like some people were thrown off by uh, by his being anti-Cuba, anti-Venezuela. And it was like, that's an old Latin pop American populist right tradition. 
the uh, they, they were never on the, the communist side of the equation. The uh, so it was intriguing to me. It was a recognition that that you know the while populism in Latin America has generally had a leftist hue in the last century, it's not only had a leftist hue. In 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 uh, in fact, quite the contrary. I mean, in uh, Colombia, the the it was between a left candidate and a populist right candidate. The uh, the sort of mini Trump that was running there, and it's not a surprise. What it does reflect, I think, is the popularity of Trumpish style politics in uh, Central and Latin America of personalities, and we're seeing more candidates like that, more people speak like that, talk like that, etc. Reflects the same reason why. Trump over time has only grown in his approval amongst Latino voters in the United States of Mexican and Central American ancestry. And the and that's only going to continue in Caribbean ancestry. The uh, uh, he's the, like in the Republican primaries, that's uh, you know, amazing. These things are still happening. But in places like in Florida, he crushes DeSantis in Miami more than any other place. Um, the uh, na- na- nationally. Why he's beating Biden for the first time ever in the modern media polls or beating any Democrat uh, because they never had him ahead in 2016. They didn't have him within shooting distance of winning. That's why he was such a big underdog when I went over to London and placed all those bets in Dublin on, on uh, Trump. The, uh, uh, in the in the same with the uh, 2020 election. Uh, they, they never had him close. I mean, the median expect Biden was expected to win by a bigger margin than Barack Obama won in 2008 mm-hmm. uh, by eight points or more. So the, now every media poll has Trump ahead, which means from an electoral college perspective, Trump has an insurmountable lead. He has a lead outside of what some might call the margin of fraud. But where a lot of that comes from in parts of the country, particularly Florida, particularly the Southwest, is the huge inroads he began making in 2020 amongst Latin vote, Latin American, Central American voters, voters of that ancestry, Hispanic voters, as they're mm-hmm. typically identified in the United States, doesn't make any sense because most of them don't speak Spanish. But the you know that that's the uh, and it's the same kind of thing. Like the the Mexican cowboy image in West Texas easily blends with Trump's Uber uh, machismo. New York City style uh, approach. And so you're seeing like the uh, what's interesting to me is that somebody like Malay, just like the El Salvadoran president, who's been wildly popular, looks at what Trump did successfully and imitates it in ways that other politicians around the world really aren't. I get it in Europe. Europe imagines it. Europe's still a snob continent, basically. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Trump is too beneath them to, to imitate those kind of tactics and techniques. Uh, but I've been surprised that in places like most of the United States, people haven't looked at what Trump has done and emulated. And you look at Malay, he he went from 2% in the polls, nobody knew who the guy was, to now the president of a major country in Latin America and in the world, in Argentina, uh, because he, mostly he emulated Trump, over-the-top rhetoric, over-the-top language. Like he did that board with all the different ministers. And he was like, this minister out, throw him in the trash. This minister out, throw him in the trash, right? Now that you could have seen, you could imagine like Berlusconi in Italy doing something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, tactically or, or uh, in terms of marketing, but not as much elsewhere. And I, I wonder to what degree are those parts of the world? We've seen, you know, in Philippines, we've seen it parts of Asia, um, whether other parts, maybe Africa uh, and whether ever Europe at any level. 
adopts Trump's style, even if not Trump's policies or Trump's approach, uh, but Trump the marketing tactics of Trump, the or is that going to be something that's limited to the Americas? What, what do you think? Well, I think it might. And I can I just make one important point, which is that Donald Trump, as a political figure, as president of the United States, was a popular figure in much of the world outside Europe. People get this very wrong about Trump because, of course, perspective about the internet, many people of the United States still get the sense, still behave as if foreign opinion is European opinion. The European political class didn't like Donald Trump, period. They didn't like anything about him. They found him unpredictable. They didn't like what they sensed his politics were. They didn't like what they sensed his views of them was. And they didn't like him. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the world didn't. Trump was popular and successful in the Far East. He got on well with lots of Far East leaders. I remember when he went to, um, you know, on an Asian tour, right at the beginning, they all warmed to him. They liked him. The Arab leaders liked him. I can easily imagine the African leaders and the Latin American leaders liking him too. And it could translate very well, possibly, conceivably, um, amongst people as well, provided, you know, the sort of media control which is pervasive around the world, breaks through. The more people saw of Donald Trump around the world, I'm not talking about Europe, but elsewhere around the world, the more they warm to him. The more they see of Joe Biden and before that of Barack Obama, the less they like them. And that's the thing that people don't understand. So just saying, now, if you're talking about Europe, one country where one political leader did, to some extent, to a certain extent, try and copy Donald Trump and did succeed was Giorgio Maloney in Italy. And I mean, you know, if you look at the Maloney style, um, which a lot of people found populist and, un, you know, unusual in European terms, um, it did succeed. But I think one of the problems is that increasingly now a lot of people in Italy and in Europe are starting to think that that was a sham all along and that she borrowed the style but not the substance and that she promised in Italy more than she's delivered. Now, she's trying to do various things with family-friendly policies, family-friendly tax policies, but, of course, she's trying to do that within the straitjacket of the European Union and its fiscal and legal structures and the two are now increasingly colliding. And we've had this um, decision now by the German Constitutional Court, which has outlawed a budget manoeuvre that the German government, the current German government, tried to carry out. And that's going to make the fiscal landscape in Europe tighter still. And I think a lot of people in Italy were willing to back Maloney in a battle with the European Union. And I think that some of the enthusiasm for her, I mean, they would still vote for her now because they look at the alternatives and they say, what alternatives? But I think some of the enthusiasm, some of the excitement that was there when she was first elected has probably faded away because she has 
so worked so hard to come across as this loyal EU team player. I mean, there was a story I read about her that she turned up at the first meeting uh, with the EU officials with a cake. And she said, look, I've got this nice cake for you. I'm not a bad person. I'm on your side. And, you know, as Alex and I can tell, can say, you give these people an inch if you try to be friends with them. They will take you over. There is no meeting. There is no way you can meet with them, you know, on sort of equal terms. You're either with them 100% or they're against you 100%. There is just no middle way. And it's a bit like what Donald Trump tried to do when he was elected, um, it, after he was elected, when he came in in 2017. He tried to get these the people he was up against to like him and to work with him. And he found that they weren't interested in liking or working him. And Maloney, to some extent, has made the same mistake in, in Europe. But that's the only place where I could, in Europe, where perhaps, again, because of the history, the traditions, some kind of more populist policies have been successful. In Britain, you look at the situation, and here it's a complete political desert. We've discussed this many times. We now have the uni party fully in control. People are very angry. The economy is a very bad place. And things are not going well. And coming back to Donald Trump, which is a topic we're going to have to come back to many times, I suspect. But coming back to Donald Trump, the media here in Britain are absolutely furious and terrified at the prospect of Trump's return. So articles about him in The Economist, he is the greatest threat to world peace, apparently, in 2024. I mean, you know, uh, what's, you know, War in the Middle East, <laughs> collapse in Ukraine, threats of an economic crisis, all of that, that, that's not important. I mean, if Donald Trump wins the election in 2024, he doesn't even become president until 2025. But even if he wins the election in 2024 and wins it, let's be clear, constitutionally, lawfully and democratically, that is the greatest threat to world peace. That's the economist for you, the Financial Times. Even worse, if you read pieces by people like Martin Wolf and Gideon Rackman and people like that, who are the lead um, um, leader writers, uh, article writers, opinion writers of the Financial Times. I mean, the way they talk about Trump, I mean, you know, you, this is the their descript their, their perspective of him is that he's Mussolini on steroids. I mean, that's that's their vision of him. And you see the same thing repeated itself. Even somebody like Gerard Baker in the London Times, who had a certain type of, well, he was prepared to give the, Trump the benefit of the doubt from time to time. He talks about this vengeful Trump who's coming in. He's going to purge everybody. He's going to transform the US government. He's going to go after, you know, everything that we care for and value in the United States. And I have to say, I find all of this very troubling. I look myself at what has happened in the United States over the last, well, six years since Donald Trump first appeared on the scene. And I get to say it again. I said it many times. 
The danger is not from Donald Trump. It's from his political opponents. They have burnt through every conceivable uh, legal thing. Uh, they're becoming increasingly, they've been using the legal system in incredibly dangerous ways. They pursued false claims against him. People talk about theories of a certain kind. They never admit that Russiagate was one. I mean, there's never been any kind of accountability for Russiagate, any kind of admission that Russiagate was a load of nonsense, which it was. Um, you look at all of that story, you ask yourself, who is the real person, the real people who are inputting US democracy and ultimately world peace in danger? And it's not Donald Trump, it's his adversaries. And he finally does what he said back in 2016 that he would do, which is drain the swamp by clearing out all kinds of people. Well, bring it on as far as I can, I'm concerned. It's necessary. It's necessary in order to make the political system in the United States work properly at last. Yeah, there, it's fascinating in the states that the uh, the original uh, of, of that Donald Trump presents that others have uh, some successfully, some unsuccessfully uh, tried to emulate or imitate. Uh, you know, the Malay Maloney difference is is exposed, and you know Malay was like, you have to crush uh, these people. You can't give them an inch. You give them an inch, you, uh, you'll get crushed. Uh, you know, it's very you know that's a very Trumpish position that, as you note, he himself inconsistently kept as in, in his first term, to his own detriment, ultimately. But there's no question that the uh, Trump uh, election is inevitable at this point, uh, outside of the hopes of the lawfare being weaponized by the Biden administration at an unprecedented pace and at an at, uh, unprecedented level, period. And so in the, it, it, and the reason for American people's support of Trump at the moment is uh, simple that when Trump was president, there was uh, peace. Uh, there was more peace ab abroad, not perfect peace, but more peace abroad. No new war started. First one since Jimmy Carter to avoid that. Uh, you could say Reagan avoided war for the most part, uh, depending on how you interpret some of the covert wars that were fought. The but the uh, uh, but definitely more so than the Bush, the regime of Bushes and Clintons and and Obamas. I mean, who are happy and eager to get into new war every other year. Uh, so you, you had meaningfully peace abroad for four years, meaningful efforts at peace in the Middle East with the Abraham Accords and moving more in that direction. You had less Israeli Hamas, Israeli Hezbollah conflict during Trump's term than you did during Obama's term or W's term or Clinton's term. And that, you know, there was less talk from Israel of let's bomb Iran under Trump than there was under Obama when Netanyahu and Obama went right at it on that topic and others. So, uh, and then of course, Ukraine, we didn't, never went into Ukraine under Trump, uh, that Trump was trying to do a detente with Russia that was uh, derailed by the Russia gate, false allegations and accusations, but he was on the absolutely right path uh, in terms of understanding Putin and Russia's role from a geopolitical perspective. He's the guy who was in the process of getting a peace deal with North Korea uh, before uh, Sean Hannity's placement of John Bolton in, inside the administration sidetracked. Now, you can be fairly critical of Trump for allowing some of these nitwits around him, uh, but it was, as Alex noted, the belief or hope or idea 
that he could work with these people uh, when, in fact, he needs to do what he's now talking about. He needs to crush them. It's what Huey Long said, the famous American populist governor. When he was first elected governor of Louisiana, he said, you know, I used to try to negotiate with him. He goes now, and then they tried to impeach him and remove him by a couple of different illicit means, the Rockefeller machine there in Louisiana, and other corrupt aspects of that uh, political machine in Louisiana. And he says, now I just crush him. Uh, Now, of course, they ultimately killed him, but that's another story for another day. Uh, That (coughs) geopolitically, realistically, there's no other choice, as you know, uh, that the uh, it, Trump isn't on a revenge tour because Trump is motivated personally uh, entirely by revenge. Now, he's someone who believes in revenge. He has said so his entire life. Uh, the and I'm from East Tennessee. So, I, you know, I, the of the Hatfields and McCoy. So I think there's great virtue in revenge. Uh, but the the it, it's simply a practical matter. The only way uh, America is going to escape the last uh, half century, at least, of compromised global and domestic politics that has been corrupted by an elite that doesn't care about America, doesn't care about the American people, doesn't care about the American way of life, such as constitutional liberties and freedoms, restrictions and restraints on the state. Not, I mean, we were the, one of the first countries built on the principle of no standing army. And now we have, what, 450 or whatever it is, military bases around the world. This is anti-American, what what is what has taken place. And that's where Trump is absolutely right, that there needs to be a purge. But as they see all their efforts to derail his electability, electability fail, and the, they thought the lawfare would work. They thought the lawfare, they thought the January 6th committee would educate the people that this is a dangerous insurrectionist uh, hanging out with militia types out in the woods in Idaho and Montana who can't wait to overthrow the government and install white supremacy or whatever their latest uh, language is. And it it completely failed because it was completely false. It was a complete fabrication from day one. January 6th was filled with infiltrators, instigators, and informants. Uh, It was a fedsurrection, not an insurrection. Uh, 90% of the people were just taking an unauthorized tour of the Capitol and stayed right between the lines. Uh, It was the most peaceful riot, if you want to call it a riot, in the history of the Capitol. Especially just compare it to six months before with the BLM riots in Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C., where real injuries took place, real attacks took place, real property damage took place. Those people received checks rather than indictments. Uh, So the Nature of it, and then of course the all the charges, as you know, Alex was are bogus. None of them have any credibility. You, in in the court of public opinion, you, for a criminal case or a civil case to stick, you need a victim, a real literal victim. Uh, when they're trying to propagate war, the reason why Democrats are so much better than Republicans at, at getting us involved in stupid wars around the world mm-hmm. is because when they w- wage war, it's not for oil, of course not. It's not for money. It's not for power. It's not for currency. It's uh, it's it's for the women and the children and the refugees and the four freedoms and, and the apple pie and whatever else. The uh, you know that they understand how to wage war effectively. That's why you know wag the dog at perfectly captures the the democratic strategy to get you involved in a stupid war someplace. Uh, the. The, the, the same sort of uh, underlying dynamics it applies to the court of public opinion. You, if you want a case to be persuasive, that you had to breach all historic precedent and arguably violate the Constitution in order to bring these indictments and civil suits against them, 
the, that are trying to bankrupt him and imprison him for life, then you better have real victims that people can feel empathy with. There's literally no victims. The victim in each case is the deep state. The victim is some corrupt politician, some corrupt hack. That's the supposed victim. In New York, the fraud allegations uh, are that he was more sophisticated than the banks and got a good deal than the biggest Wall Street banks in the world. Nobody is sympathetic with the Wall Street banks. That, that doesn't exist. Uh, and, of course, none of those banks are complaining. They all got paid back in full. Insurance companies got paid back in full. Nobody was defrauded. People got jobs. People got services. People got benefits. In the in the criminal case in New York, another completely bogus allegation that he tricked himself about how he paid something. I mean, it's just ludicrous. He's the victim of his own crime. And then, of course, you have the Georgia State case that uh, that raising challenging elections somehow now a crime. Well, who's the victim? The only victim is Donald Trump and the American people who didn't get an honest election. Same thing in D.C. Same thing in Florida. The Florida federal judge is picking up on some of this insanity. And now the case is getting more and more delayed, unlikely to occur before Election Day. The Georgia prosecutor is, you know, is not very bright. She never was very bright, Fannie Willis. The uh, uh, so you know, the, the probability that case gets there before Election Day is very, very low. So the New York criminal case, we've seen how the New York civil case is going. That judge has embarrassed himself on a national stage, embarrassed the rule of law of America, the credibility of our judicial institutions globally. Look like a joke. We will never have the same reputation in some circles around the world that we used to about the integrity, impartiality, intelligence of our judicial system. I mean, we were supposed to be the model for the world. I mean, we were pushing that to, to Putin 10 years ago. You know, model your Russian justice system after the American justice system, incorporate a jury trial system. And Putin actually tried to do so in many respects. The you know, jury trials were foreign to Russian history. You know, now there are, you know, seven, eight percent of trials were becoming jury trials. Uh, you know, but the uh, now we've damaged that in ways that, you know, it, it's like the Cuban show trials. Right. You know, if they had done those trials differently, like they did those trials for domestic consumption, domestic propaganda. But the, much of the rest of the world watching that, that might have had some sympathy on what you could call the liberal labor left uh, towards the Castro regime, were like, okay, hold on a second. This doesn't quite look like what we were thinking a justice system would look like. This looks more like mob justice. This looks more like the French Revolution. But now they're seeing the same in America. They're seeing Stasi Soviet-style show trials. Mm -hmm. They're seeing political partisan hacks with judges who are having unelected officials like their clerks run, actually co-judge the case and then tell the world nobody can talk about it. Uh, uh, fine President Trump for exposing her partisan bias. Threaten the lawyers in front of him uh, with sanctions uh, and, and worse. Threaten President Trump that he would imprison him if he kept talking about it. Yeah. These are gag orders that are patently unconstitutional. The D.C. judge issued a lunatic gag order. But of course, it's somehow magically three Democrats that get on the panel that's going to over, uh, that's going to decide whether to overturn it. If they're smart, they'll invalidate that gag order because if they're dumb enough to keep it there, then the Supreme Court is more likely to get involved. Yeah. Sooner or later, the Supreme Court probably has to get involved mm -hmm. because they are trying to take them off the ballot, which is patently unconstitutional. There's no constitutional uh, precedent for that whatsoever to take it of some of the American people want from the ballot. And, uh, and and even liberal Democratic judges who hate him are acknowledging they don't have that power in Michigan, in Minnesota, in Colorado. Um, but all of this political, the goal was not to lock Trump up so much. The goal was to discredit Trump in the court of public opinion to such a degree that he was no longer a viable political threat. And the problem is the American people have seen through it. 
There's no victim here. That these aren't real fraud cases. These aren't real crime cases. These aren't that that they're trying to punish Trump for being a dissident. And in the process, they've changed and revolutionized his image amongst constituencies that previously were hostile or skeptical of Trump. Trump went from being this caricature of old money, rich white guy, New York wealth, to being the ultimate underdog outsider, like uh, for those constituencies and communities that have experienced that harassment before, like parts of the Hispanic and African-American communities in the United States. And amongst younger voters, he went from being a cultural symbol of, of sort of cartoonish evil to the uh, ultimate outsider, the ultimate underdog, the ultimate beleaguered individual. They, they couldn't have written a script better for him than by all of these fake cases and all of these bogus charges and all this misuse and abuse of judicial power. But they're so embubbled that they don't see how the rest of the world in their own country is responding beyond these polls and surveys. And the uh, and then, of course, they have an additional problem. Once Robert Kennedy announced he was going to run as an independent uh, for the presidency, if they really did try to take Trump off the ballot, if they really try to take Trump out in some manner, then the probable result will not be the reelection of Joe Biden, will not be the election of some other late substitute Democrat. It will not be Nikki Haley, neocon Nikki, uh, war Karen Nikki, which is my favorite new war phrase, war Karen. She's really earned it very well. Um, the, uh, it, you know, it won't be a heel wearing DeSantis. Uh, it, it, it'll be Robert Kennedy. And then they've got the same level of problem. And some would say if on the deep state apparatus side, they have a bigger problem because Kennedy is even more determined to take them out than that. Then some people wonder whether Trump will follow through given his first administration, try to work with these people rather than crush him. Uh, Kennedy is committed to crushing them. Now, of course, some of my friends on the left are busy burning their bridges with Kennedy because they disagree with him on Israel, which I find self-destructive and unwise on their part. But, hey, you know, political suicide is a long tradition in parts of the American left. God bless them and the anti-war movement. Um, but the uh, uh, but, yeah, I think right now they've thrown everything at Trump. Nothing has worked. Nothing has stuck. Nothing has succeeded. And the only question is, what bridges are they willing to burn to try to keep Trump out of the White House? And are they willing to gamble that the beneficiary of that was is Robert Kennedy? Or are they going to try to take both out? You know, I mean, they you know they did assassinate Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy Sr. in the same year. So, I mean, it's not, unfortunately, impossible to foresee. But I think that the the, the what I shocked the Amer uh, the uh, deep state and the ne or you call them national security establishment whatever military industrial complex use whatever language you want to is our intelligence community is so out of touch and so disconnected and the Washington think tank so out of touch and so disconnected that they don't didn't realize the American people would see through this charade and the only people right now being very harmed is the American judicial system which has people second-guessing them, questioning them, doubting them, their integrity, their impartiality, their independence, their intelligence in ways that has never happened in American legal history, political history before. And that is why I'm hopeful, there's no guarantee, that the Supreme Court of the United States at some point steps into some of these cases and ends the charade once and for all, uh, rather than have to deal with the embarrassment of what if you have a criminally convicted uh, they're attempting to jail Trump uh, when he's elected president of the United States. Uh, I mean, the I mean, the judge presiding over that case is the granddaughter and great niece of Jamaican communists that were so hard left. The, the, the socialists kicked him out of the party. 
So, you know, it's like, you know, I mean, the fact that these are the judges presiding over some of these cases uh, is to some of us n not the best sign of where America's rule of law is currently uh, or America's political institutions are. But uh, the they see Trump as an existential threat. They see Robert Kennedy Jr. as an existential threat. They have to choose between one of those two poisons or uh, because uh, or try to uh, completely obliterate American constitutional democracy. Sadly, the latter is at real risk because of how insane and delusional these people are. Mm. Well, can I say lots of things again, <laughs> uh, Robert? You always bring up things. Let's start with revenge in politics. There was a quote of Robert Kennedy Sr.'s that my aunt always used to remind me of when talking about politics and revenge. And by the way, uh, she always claimed that she met him. <laughs> I've never been completely sure that she did, but maybe she did. She often claimed to meet all kinds of interesting people. <laughs> but anyway, um, she, and I think this is a genuine quote of Robert Kennedy's. I always forgive my enemies, but I always remember their names. And I think this is exactly what you should do. You should always you know, forgive people by all means in politics. You can do that, but never forget who they are and don't trust them because they've shafted you once. They're absolutely capable of shafting you again. It's not a question of, you know, coming after people, you know, Al Capone style and behaving that kind of way. It's it's simply the reality of how the political system, of how politics works anywhere. You just cannot work with people who have come after you before. And trying, <coughs> trying to become friends with them, to win them round, it never works. It's a waste of time. You're just wasting political energy and political capital when you try to do it. Just do exactly what Millet is talking about. Get rid of them all. Push them aside. If you win, if you win, win, go forward, act out what you want to do, be utterly ruthless. Lincoln was ruthless, by the way. Uh, Roosevelt was ruthless. Franklin Roosevelt was completely ruthless. Just just push them, push them aside and do what you want to do and call it revenge if you like. But that's that's how you should... About how she should act in politics. That's the first thing. Second, about populism. I mean, the idea that populism should have a bad name in the United States of all places is incredible. I mean, do these people not understand what America was created to be? Do they not know its history? Do they not know the history of American politics? Do they not know about Andrew Jackson, for example, who some people think was the founder of the Democratic Party? Do they not know about how the Republican Party got itself going? You know, about, you know, the people going out in the prairies and those sort of places and having the meetings and talking in incredibly excited, no doubt, impassioned ways. That's what, that's, that's actually the whole point and essence of American democracy. You read people like, um, you know, Tocqueville, whom I've always found an absolutely hilarious writer myself. I've never understood why Americans take him as seriously as they do. But, you know, Tocqueville goes off to America and he comes back to Europe and he starts, you know, the one problem with America is you can't tell who the servants are because everybody talks politics. They're all, they're all, they're all, everybody considers that their opinions 
carry equal weight. Tocqueville didn't like American democracy. He wrote about it. He didn't like it. He was a French aristocrat. And for him, this was a very, very, very strange, subversive and rather scary thing. America, that, that, when people say that they are against populism, what they are really against is democracy. It's about people talking straightforwardly in the language of people, the, the, you know, the real great mass of the people of the United States. Once upon a time, that was how American, American democracy functioned. And not so long ago, by the way, um, those people who are against democracy, who are against populism, ultimately, they don't like democracy. They want an aristocratic, controlled political system. And you can see that in their language. The cliche-ridden, formulaic language that they use, totally contrary to the American political tradition. And when people talk in that stilted Soviet-style way, because that's what it is, that's when you can tell who are the friends of democracy and who are its enemies. If they talk in that kind of stilted way, they are not friends of democracy. And the other thing, populism and American democracy always functioned within a system or a proper system of law. Now, a, a properly impartial system of law. And you could see that. You could see, I mean, you know, Abraham Lincoln, born in a log, log cabin, self-educated man. He's... Um, speeches saturated with biblical language because of course that was a profoundly christian country in those days and he spoke again the language that people knew and he knew how to use the language of the bible to convey his ideas as again it's something people don't talk about he was also of course a trained lawyer and you could see in his speeches how he uses the legal the structure of legal argument and it's the structure of legal argument he uses to convince juries you know the people who who are you know ordinary people the the people of the united states they are there in juries and he knows exactly how to talk to the american people but fundamentally even when he violates the law and the constitution he knows it and he's guilty about it and he's ashamed of it and he's always trying to find ways to go back and that is the nature again of the american system you keep the legal system out of politics that was the american way and i am horrified by what has happened in new york now once upon a time in a, you know, not, you know, a long time ago, when I used to deal with legal things, when I used to work in the Royal Courts of Justice, the New York system, the commercial, the, the commercial court system in the United States, was always considered the alternative, the big alternative place to the commercial legal system in London, the commercial courts in London. Um, American commercial judges used to get cited in British courts informing precedents. So that's a pretty extraordinary thing because the British High Court, by the way, likes to think that in common law matters and in commercial matters, you know, they're the absolute, you know, ne plus ultra, you can't go, but you know, they, even they 
cited American judges. I mean, was it Cardozo? Was he an American New York oh, yeah. judge? I think. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. Hand, uh, yeah, absolutely. Speaker. Absolutely. All of these people, they got cited there. And I see this absolute shambles in New York now. This is the system I always looked up to because, you know, you know, I used to remember when I used to do sort of drafts and things, I used to look up and say, well, you know, we don't have a clear view. What did the Americans say? And I'd go to the people in New York. And now we have gag orders. You can't criticize the judge. And this is in a civil case, mind you. There isn't even a jury there. This is a civil case. And the judges are throwing out gag orders. This is insane. This is ridiculous. This is absurd. How can you possibly be doing something like this in New York and in America? And when Robert says, when you say, Robert, that this is trashing the reputation of the New York system, of the American legal system, well, that has to be right. It's a legal system. I've always admired. I've always felt they were way ahead of us in understanding constitutional law. After all, they invented constitutional law. There was no such thing as constitutional law until the Americans came along and set up their own constitution and had it written out in clear, lucid, simple English that everybody can understand, starting with those immortal words, we the people. It's and you, you, you're you going in for gag orders? I mean, it is ridiculous. It is absurd. Um, they, this undermines the essence of America. Now, you know, if I carry on like this, I will begin to get really, really angry, which is not what I want to do. I always try to keep my uh, uh, feelings, emotions under control in discussing programs of this kind. And you can see the <laughs> earphones are coming out of my ears, if you like. But I mean, that is the reality of the United States today. If, if we have a situation where the legal system is used to prevent someone like Donald Trump, and you're absolutely correct, by the way, all these cases are bogus, they're completely phony. I, I, I mean, they're, they're obviously so. The Supreme Court should definitely intervene at some point. I don't know what the procedural mechanics are, but they should definitely intervene to put this whole, a stop to this whole thing. But if, God help us, this succeeds. We're not in the world of the United States. We're not in the world of American jurisprudence and American jurism. Um, Vyshinsky is now in charge. He was Stalin's prosecutor. He once said famously, you know, when assessing guilt or innocence, don't look at the evidence. Consider instead the class position of the defendant. That's that's what you should think about. Well, that's that's essentially where we are. It's not, you know, whether or not somebody is innocent or guilty. You're not applying due process. You're not applying legal principles. You're not applying, you know, proper standards of guilt or innocence. You're instead applying, uh, uh, you know, Vyshinsky and thinking, which is, of course, what these gag orders are all about. In the land of Tom Paine, 
the place where Tom Paine actually eventually settled, you know, the French nearly executed him, <laughs> the English prescribed him. He ended up in the United States. He became a journalist there. He ran a kind of newspaper which clearly wouldn't be tolerated in the US today. But anyway, um, um, in the land of Tom Paine, judges, judges protect themselves with gag orders? I mean, this is absolutely unbelievable. It is astonishing. And if by any possible chance the terrible thing that Robert spoke about at the very end happened, if people like um, Trump or RFK, and I, you know, I don't want to talk about this because talking about it, I find an ominous thing in itself. But if anything like that happens, well, then God save America, because frankly, um, I'm not sure how the American Republic survives that. Yeah, what's the way I compare it to people is that the Biden administration and their allies and the various state governments have weaponized the American legal system in the same way that they weaponized the American financial system against Russia. Mm. And that backfired badly. Not only did it not work in achieving any meaningful uh, or consequential detrimental action on Russia. In fact, it, as Vivek and others that have, have pointed out, all it did is push Russia and China closer together uh, so that it was geopolitically ill-advised from whatever perspective you take on Russia. But more importantly, it terrified the entire rest of the world who recognized, oh, I shouldn't have my money in Western banks. I shouldn't have my investments in Western companies. I shouldn't have my property tied up in, under the control of Western jurisdictions. And all of a sudden, because the whole, it was the liquidity, the ease, and the certainty of the global financial system that America had helped establish it, that lent it its credibility and broad utility around the world. Once you politically weaponize that power, you destroy the whole point and purpose of its utility and benefit. You now make it an imminent risk, a imminent threat, whether you're a politician or you're just a disfavored millionaire or billionaire. I mean, here you have the former president of the United States who they're trying to bankrupt his entire business ban him as an entire family from ever engaging in business, fire all of his employees, destroy all kinds of services and tax base to the New York people that uh, would otherwise benefit them simply because he's a political opponent of the administration. And once people realize that, uh, then it's like what person still takes the gamble to invest in real estate in New York who or, or set up business in New York? Like a case pending before the Supreme Court of the United States is the long uh, uh, abuse of selective prosecution that the courts have tolerated too long. That, you know, First Amendment says you can't use the weaponize the judicial system to punish someone for their political association, their expression, their beliefs, their activities, their opinions, their religious affiliations, associations, expressions, or opinions. And yet that's clearly precisely what happened. The case that the Supreme Court took up was a pre-Trump case. It was when the New York state of New York went after the National Riflemen's Association, the uh, the NRA, which is a boogeyman on the on the anti-gun left, and they they targeted him deliberately. 
Here, I mean, to me, it was always an outrage the courts didn't step in from the get-go. You had someone who you couldn't have the more more compelling selective prosecution case than every single case against Trump. This is an attorney general who won her election saying, vote for me, I'll prosecute Donald Trump. Not because of anything he did, I'll find something he did. I mean, she ran on the Berea plan. Show me the man and I'll find you the crime. Elect me and I'll find you the crime. I'll find you the bad act. And then, and then the New York DA did the exact same thing. I mean, I had a case before the prior New York DA, the famous uh, uh, Amy Cooper case, so-called Central Park Karen case. I got that case resolved and all charges dismissed before the new DA came in because I could tell he was going to be so political, all bets would be off. You would have no rational thought. You'd have to fight everything in one of the most corrupt court systems in the world, unfortunately. I, had a, I represented Wesley Snipes against the New York court system, sued the entire court system in federal court because they were so abusing their power on behalf of social welfare officials out of the state of Indiana, making up allegations against him that were ludicrous of paternity and trying to issue Interpol arrest warrants for him. Can you imagine some of the little hearing examiner in the New York family court system, which is a Byzantine, bizarre court system to begin with, is getting Interpol to issue arrest warrants. I had to be on the phone with with uh, airport officials around the globe uh, saying you better not because that's a, uh, I was, you know, telling him it was a bogus warrant uh, and that they could be arrested. They themselves could be sued for it and because it was snipes. They, they decided not to enforce it, but he almost ended up arrested all around the world uh, because of the, the, the insanity of it. But what the court system did well is it hid its parochialism. It hid its prejudice. It hid its corruption to minority groups, dissident groups, so, like I always said, the brilliance of the American criminal justice system is it only uh, uh, goes after about 5% of the American population. So, consequently, 95% of the population doesn't really understand its faults, its frailties, its, its meaningful material weaknesses. When we, when we went after people before, it was you know during the Civil War, after uh, during a Civil War, so that's going to have a different political dynamic. During World War I, uh, J. Edgar Hoover came to power. We weaponized the legal system against Eugene V. Debs, uh, the socialist candidate. There were people out there. He, Debs was convicted of sedition in a federal prison. He was still on the ballot uh, when in whatever state he wanted to be on in the 1920 presidential election. This is why they can't. This is this long history prevents them from really prohibiting Trump from being on the ballot without being completely dishonest. Uh, and and so you the. The net, the collateral side effect of their hatred of Trump. I mean, one has been that whatever you think of Trump, whether you like him or not, Trump has exposed the corruption of the system, exposed the duplicity of the deep state, exposed the national security apparatus, exposed the media prejudices, exposed how bad, how how, how a trophy our institutions of influence have become. Even our FBI, even our intelligence apparatus, even our legal system to all the way down to the state law clerk level like that state law clerk in the new york case that's literally sitting next to the judge i mean i've never seen this in my no, life no. i mean and he's talking to her throughout to, before he makes a single decision it's obvious i mean it's a guy who sends out notices to his alumnus alumni bragging about how he's screwing trump in between posting photos of his 73 year old abs it's like this guy is gone Right. I mean, this is a judge, New York, the, you know, big New York law and order, New York, you know, the uh, you know, where you get the famous steps in the courthouse and the, all the TV shows and all the celebrity evidence, uh, you know, the 
I mean, there's you know, film after film after film portraying the, the great noble justice system of New York. And But this clerk, she ran for herself for judge. She ran on how she was targeting Trump. She just referred to it as a real estate company, so she disguised it. Uh, but everybody knew what she was talking about. She's like, hey, elect me. I'm, I'm busy screwing over Trump. And she explicitly stated what you're talking about, Alexander, in terms of the Soviet mindset, the, the Stasi mindset, that the justice system is here to obtain political objectives, not to enforce law, not to, not to find truth, not to discover fact. Uh, and she said it explicitly. She said, I believe precedents should be established to support the people who vote for you, not for any other reason. It's like that, that, that's not what precedent is supposed to mean in the Anglo-American legal tradition. This is an attack on the principles of the Enlightenment itself that were best reflected and represented in the American rule of law and the legal institutions. And what they've done is they've jeopardized it because you're right. Like people forget, number one, money laundering capital of the world is really not any foreign nation. It's the United States of America. Uh, but the, the part of that is we get a lot of foreign investment. And why do we get that foreign investment? Because people trust that our legal system will be impartial, that our legal system has set rules that are predictable so that you know if I do business here, this is the likely consequence. If this happens or this happens, I'll get remedy here. I'll get relief there. I won't be targeted because somebody tomorrow doesn't like my politics or doesn't like my Twitter post. Or something like that. Uh, I mean, you have Elon Musk for X filing suit against Media Matters because Media Matters was fabricating uh, Twitter results to try to run advertising boycott campaigns uh, based on disfavored opinions. You have Elon Musk being targeted by the Biden administration, and that's escalating ever since he bought X. Uh, using its powers at the SEC to go after him, using powers in other places to go after him, using the lawyers. The lawyers that went after Alex Jones are now going after Elon Musk in the same Austin uh, court system that was also a political embarrassment to the rule of law and its institutions. So in the end, as I tell people, this isn't whether Trump wins or not. Uh, this isn't whether uh, what happens in 2025. This is whether or not America survives as a constitutional republic, democracy, rule of law, governed country that cares about, respects, and recognizes each individual and the sort of universal humanitarian principles rooted in the American Revolution that said each person has value, each person has rights. Uh, and that we are going to respect and recognize those rights. And we're going to bind ourselves by a set of principles that we will impartially administer in these institutions uh, that we call law. And will, will the rule of law survive? Will the uh, American uh, uh, perception abroad survive? Uh, because they're so nuts about going after Trump. They're in just like they went after Russia with everything. And all it did was backfire, not just in failed effort in Ukraine, but in the fact that the entire global south woke up to uh, not only the global south, every billionaire in the world realized, oh, I don't, I don't want to be uh, uh, like the Russian owner of Chelsea, Abramovich, mm -hmm. and overnight I lose everything I've put my money mm -hmm. in, everything I've put my investments in, mm -hmm. everything I've relied upon. Mm -hmm. So the uh, and so I want alternative. I mean, BRICS is really about an alternative financial system, not so much, not necessarily just an alternative currency. But an alternative means of getting money around the world outside the control of the West, which wasn't an obsession until they did this action. What happens when you can't trust the American legal system anymore? Mm -hmm. You're going to have problems with foreign investment. You're going to have problems with 
uh, where people store their capital. You're going to have problems with where people put confidence in the banks and in the financial system. Uh, you can have all kinds of devastating collateral consequences hmm. that are just as devastating as an, an out-of-control inflationary currency or anything else. So, But it tells us something about where we are. They're willing to jeopardize the entire thing just hmm. to stop Donald Trump from being uh, president of the United States, number 47. Absolutely, which is uh, reflects the fact that this is ultimately about political power in the United States. It's not really about government, administration, the welfare of the um, uh, American people, the position of the United States in the world, the state of the US economy, or any of these things. It's ultimately an extremely raw battle about political power. And that, again, by the way, to some extent reflects Soviet practice. I mean, everybody in the Soviet Union, all the political, there was constant power struggle. But it was really actually about substantive things. Sometimes it was, but usually it wasn't. And it was all about who is going to be the top dog. And you use whatever tools and mechanisms there are to hand to push the other person down and basically to eliminate, eliminate them from the system. And that's it seems to me, where we're heading in the United States. And I think the other thing to say about this is you mentioned Vivek, you've mentioned Musk, you've mentioned all of these people. You've mentioned the weaponization of the system of finance, the effect that it's having. Of course, the point to understand about the people who make decisions today in the political system is that they are not business people. They're not people who handle money. They're not even to a great extent, people who work come, have come up through the legal system as such. I mean, some of them are lawyers, but one gets the sense that law law practice is, their conception of law practice is really more about, you know, what Hunter and people like him have been doing as lawyers, if I have to be honest about this. So I don't think they're really even lawyers in any sense that I would understand. And they don't understand, therefore, both the importance of these things and their potential fragility if they're misused. They assume that these things can be weaponized and used in the way that they want them to be used and that it will advance their own interests in the political system and that somehow afterwards the system itself will just continue as it always has with them in control and that you know that they can turn a switch and the system will work perfectly as it always did before and then you just pull another switch and then you can use it to get rid of your personal opponents also and it doesn't work like that that is not how the financial system works that is not how the legal system works because all of these systems ultimately are anchored on trust People have to believe in the legal system in order for it to work properly. People have to believe in the financial system in order for it to function at all. If the trust in it is gone, if people see it instead as simply a mechanism that people control, other certain people control to their advantage, then the trust disappears and the system ultimately collapses with it now you mentioned um what's happened with the sanctions i just have to bring this up because of course uh, uh putin of course is of course is now 
um, laughing in some ways. We've had these two very interesting people, Friedman and Arven, the people who ran um, Alpha Bank. This is one of the few private banks still left functioning in Russia now because Putin has basically brought the entire banking system under state control. I mean, you know, there used to be lots of private banks in Russia. Now they're very few, but Alpha Bank was there. Uh, Friedman and Alpha Bank are always referred to in the British media, and it's Britain that has really come hard after them as Putin allies. They are no such thing. They are Putin critics, except, of course, perhaps I should use the past tense, because that is what they were. They've been driven out of Britain. They've had everything they had there seized. Abramovich obviously lost Chelsea, but Friedman lost all his investments. They went part of the way they went to Israel. They both ended up back in Russia. And they both made statements and they said, what idiots were we? What fools we were to trust all those promises we were given when we put our money in the West, in Britain specifically. We should have listened to the advice of our great leader, Vladimir Putin, who always told us that we should continue and remain in Russia and invest our money there. And this is the, this is the message that has been communicated right across Russia at the moment. Now, Russia is in the throes of a massive investment boom. The economy is currently growing at around, well, at around 5.5% of um, a month. I mean, that's that's the sort of rate of growth it's going. It'll probably achieve an overall rate of growth of around 3.3% this year. But that's over the whole year. At the moment, it's growing much faster than that. The central bank is worried because it is growing so fast. The reason it is growing so fast, the reason that there is an investment boom is not is partly because the government has been spending a lot and it can afford to because revenues have been high. Revenues from across the system have been high as well. The deficit is going to be less than 1% of GDP and it might even be in surplus, the budget deficit, I meant to say. But the other reason why there is an investment boom is because all this money is flowing back into Russia and is now being used there and people are investing. I mean, the word I'm getting, and you know, I've had contacts with some people in Russia, is that they say that for the first time, there is no, no longer a shortage of money to, you know, for investment in things. We can suddenly do things that we've been wanting to do for a very, very long time. And we can find loans and credit lines and entrepreneurs who will provide us with the money in ways that just hasn't been the case before. So Putin is laughing. It's worked out perfectly for him. And that, you know, people like Yellen and our former chancellor, now prime minister, Rishi Sunak, couldn't see this. I mean, it's a collapse in economic understanding. And also, I have to say this in the quality of intelligence collection that is taking place in Russia today. Yeah, the, we had uh, History Legends on. Uh, it was a great YouTube channel. 
and the uh, uh, you know done a lot of great predictive breakdowns of what has taken place in the uh, U- Ukrainian conflict. He he gave a great analysis before the great so-called summer counteroffensive, where he said Russia is just going to sit there and and mm-hmm. allow these to just just churn up uh, the entire Ukrainian military, such that they're left with. I think there was a later there was a photo recently released of some get together and. The, the new conscriptees looked like an average age of 50. You know, the, uh, it was like, the, and, and none, none of them look happy to be there. The uh, So, uh, and, and he predicted that was going to take place. So the, I recommend his channel to people out there. But a lot of this was, what's, what's fascinating, I see it sometimes in the Israeli conflict and other conflicts. I see it in the U.S. politics discussed about Trump, is a lot of the analysis out of the West concerning Russia and Ukraine substituted wishful thinking for strategic analysis. What they called geopolitics, what they called military analysis, was just wishful thinking. The other part was so much confession through projection that was going on. Like, basically, whatever the Russians did well, the Ukrainians claimed they were doing. And whatever uh, horrible things were happening to Ukraine or by Ukraine, they, they attributed to the Russians instead. Right. So whenever I used to say, if you watch the Ukrainian rush count of Russian casualties, because they're going to be confessing the number of Ukrainian casualties. Mm. And, you know, now we're seeing more confirmation of that a whole waste of a whole generation mm. uh, of, of an entire population for for what? For for literally nothing. But what was amazing is the day before Aviva and I talked to history legends. One of these popular YouTube channels in the West, it was like either infographics or it was one of those. <laughs> Had this whole thing about it was just a matter of time before Putin had to give up. And I was like, how, how can I mean, just read the New York Times. I mean, read the Washington Post. The intelligence community is begging for an exit ramp uh, from, from Putin. They're, they're hoping that maybe Putin will be nice to him and let, let him get out cheap. And you know, they don't have to give up Odessa. They don't have to give up all that land they've been promising BlackRock and all, all those resources they've been promising U.S. companies that, you know, all the loans to Ukraine were, you know, about shifting money back to a lot of big Western Wall Street companies that were just going to ravage uh, Ukraine the way they ravaged Russia in the 1990s. The, uh, uh, but it, it was an inevitable and inescapable conclusion from the inception, as you guys discussed. I mean, the only big question to me was always, could they survive the economic war? They're always going to win the military war. I mean, they're four times larger. If you look at the collective aggregate value of the Russian military, which has to include the stocks back to the Soviet Union. I mean, from a replacement value perspective, you're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars. The West didn't have enough ammunition to, to, to match that. And Russia could scale up quickly. And there's a reason why we'd ever built a lot of Ukrainian war manufacturing companies, right? You know, the, the point of the Ukrainian war was to feed money into the U.S. and Western military industrial complex. For that, you can't have those... You know, Congressmen aren't voting for it if the if it's being made in Kiev. They're voting for it if, if if the weapon is being made in their backyard by people donating to their campaigns um, and aligning with their interests. But of course, that had a downside to it. It meant Ukraine couldn't scale up uh, in, in ways that Russia could. <laughs> so I mean, you look at it now. What do you think? The interesting thing is Russia's gone so sort of slow and steady. They've now built up their troops pretty substantially. But, it, uh, you know, the, there's always this anticipation in some communities that they're just about to go full scale. 
but this feels more like aspects of World War II that it's you know a foot a day, foot a foot, you know, uh, you know, foot maybe a mile a day at most. That we're not going to see a necessarily a quick resolution within you know it may take another year. But do you think Russia goes? I don't. I still don't believe Russia goes east of the river and goes mm-hmm. uh, goes to Western Ukraine. And I don't think mm-hmm. he wants. I think he wants to stick Poland with that. You know, I mean, that worked out really great for Poland back after World War One. Uh, you know, before they were killing Jews, the uh, that group of Ukrainian neo Nazis uh, and actual Nazis, you know, were busy killing the Poles. Uh, I mean, that 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 was their favorite thing to do after the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So I'm sure Putin wants to used to joke about it. To, well, however you put it, he's like, "Hey, you guys want the Western Ukraine back? I'll give it to you." The uh, but I could see him going into Odessa and that that land because it's part of the Black Sea. It would allow control of the Black Sea. It's a very geogra- it's a rich region in terms of resources and farmland, and there's a lot of historical ancestral ties. And in his very first ever speech about going in, he talked about they're going to hold the Ukrainian, uh, the Odette, the people in Odessa responsible for what happened after the Maidan coup in terms of burning people alive that were protesting the Maidan coup, et cetera. And I was like, well, how's he going to do that unless he plans on going there? Um, I could see him going that further, but I don't see him going. Uh, uh, all of Ukraine. I don't see him going even into Kiev, really. Uh, but also, there's the question of how long this is going to take because there's been a slow, you know, inch by inch by inch. I mean, they've allowed the Ukrainians to exhaust their resources, so at some point it becomes a lot easier to move forward a lot quicker. But as long as he's operated within certain restraints, try to limit collateral damage, try to engage in old school World War II, everybody, all the civilians out, and the armies battle each other, you know, from ditch to ditch. Uh, the Ukrainians are clearly running out of resources. They're clearly running out of people, uh, clearly running out of weapons. And, you know, they never really had uh, much political support for money in the United States. That's all, all entirely gone now. Mm-hmm. And the only question is how much money they can divert and how much corrupt politicians are willing to send even a little bit more money down the pipeline. But that that cash uh, line is running out pretty quickly. What do you think the end game is over the next year for Ukraine and Russia? It's very interesting. Now, actually, Putin has been speaking about things and he said some very, very interesting things recently. And they're not getting the amount of attention that they should do. But he made uh, some comments right at the start of this month. Um, In fact, he made two sets of comments. One he made on the 4th of November. And this is the ones that to some extent people have talked about. But He's also made some other comments, too. The earlier comments that he made were very he said a very interesting thing. He said, our relations with Europe are finished. There's no way within our lifetimes that we're going to repair those. With the United States, we will at some point make a deal. (laughs) We will find a way to get our relationships, our relationship with the United States back on track. Now, it may not be the kind of Situ- you know, relationship that we once thought we would have with the Americans. They won't be our partners. It might be adversarial, but we will come to an understanding with the Americans. The Europeans, it's impossible. We've tried. We've made everything we can do. That's hopeless. With the Americans, we will eventually come to some kind of understanding. And the second thing that he said, which was equally interesting, is that he actually did finally talk territories about Ukraine. And he, he was absolutely right. 
he he mentioned look um there are the territories that were given to ukraine by the bolsheviks um the russian cities created by Catherine the great he didn't name odessa but odessa obviously is one of those places now he made it absolutely clear to me at least that he sees those as coming back under russian control under either direct russian control or about russia having some kind of role there he said that if you talk about ukraine what was ukraine the real ukraine the original ukraine of the 17th century he basically said it was just three areas kiev chernigov and zhitomir those are in the center and he referenced a letter that was sent by people from those regions then to moscow to the tsar in which they referred to themselves as russian orthodox people now i didn't read that as saying that he would annex russia was looking to annex these places but he did say that this is a fraternal region we will probably have to find some kind of strong arrangement with them there he did not mention he said absolutely nothing about lvov or western ukraine he left that completely out and um he's um, you know political deputy medvedev he then well, you know when i think Stoltenberg was it rasmussen said you know that ukraine can enter nato but you know shorn of various parts well um, um basically medvedev was saying well you know what bits of you ukraine are you going to get and he said rhetorically are you talking about galicia about the western ukraine he spoke rather dismissively Lvov. he used the Habsburg name for it he called it Lemberg which is the name it had at the time of the Habsburg Empire the overall message I got from all of that is that the Russians have absolutely no intention of moving to Western Ukraine and <laughs> they're, they're going to see that they have control or at least if not positive direct control at least exercise predominant influence in all the Russian-speaking areas. They see Kiev, Zhitomir, Lvov, perhaps as a kind of rump Ukraine, but potentially aligned with Russia, with Russia itself. Galicia, it can go where it wants. It can go to the West. It's not our concern. That's basically what they were saying. And you have that from Putin himself. And he said that this month, he said that on the 4th of November, which, by the way, is a very important day. It's a public holiday in Russia. It celebrates the liberation of Moscow from the Poles. The Poles briefly occupied uh, Moscow in the early 17th century, and it was actually liberated by the Russians then. So you could see the, you know, the, the imagery is also being played up as well so that's about the political objectives now about the running of the war now the thing to understand about the russians is that the one thing they're always good at and this is a thing people always need to remember and never do is that the one thing you should never do with the russians is take take them on in a war it's something that historically they've always been very good at and which they always run in their own way I don't think that the Russians are aiming for a single knockout blow in Ukraine. I don't think we're going to see a big arrow offensive this year. What we are seeing is this huge 
Russian military that is now being built up. They've, uh, our 420,000 men have joined the army or are in the process of joining the army this year. These are volunteers. They've been, they're not conscripts. They're people who are choosing to join the army. 1,600 a day, partly because they're being paid well to join the army, part, partly because, of course, it's the defense of the motherland, which, if you know Russians, that is an important thing. The military industries are working full tilt. They're cranking out every conceivable weapon, artillery piece, whatever that they can get. So I think the military strategy is fairly clear now. They're going to go on grinding Ukrainian the Ukrainian army down. They're going to continue to pursue this policy of demilitarization. They're going to let the Ukrainians come to them. They're going to grind them down. That may take a while, but that's what they're going to do. They're going to conserve their own forces. They're going to conserve their ammunition. They're going to adapt their army increasingly to modern war conditions. They're developing all kinds of new weapon systems, all sorts of reconnaissance systems. Lloyd Austin spoke about how he was going to use the war to bleed and weaken Russia militarily. What is happening is the diametric opposite. So they're going to grind Ukraine down. They're going to push steadily, incrementally, step by step, further west. They're going to take all the major fortified lines. They're going to go to the Dnieper. They might conceivably, I think they might push across the Dnieper if they feel they have to, in order to bring the war to a close. They're going to push on and they're going to wait for an administration in the United States with which they can do a deal and which will settle the situation in Europe. There are already articles, apparently, appearing in the media in Russia, talking about the fact that we are heading towards a new Yalta. Now, for the Russians, the words Yalta, the, you know, the discussions that took place in Yalta, in Crimea, by the way, between Stalin, Roosevelt and Churchill, have a different resonance than what they do with people in the West. In the West, we see it as a great betrayal. In With the Russians, Yalta means the agreements that were then reached, which brought about the stabilization of the situation on Russia's Western borders and a long period of security from war from the West for Russia. And I think that is the Russian objective. Now, whether they will achieve that, I don't know. Whether there will ever be that kind of administration that they can come to those kind of deals with in Washington, I don't know either. I don't know whether they themselves fully know. But, of course, by taking their time, they weaken Ukraine even more. They expose the weaknesses in the American military industrial system, which to be clear, is not the same as the U.S. economy, which is a different thing. It's just a part of the U.S. economy. But they expose the weaknesses of the military-industrial system. And um, they position themselves better. So that global deal, which won't just be about Ukraine in the Russian mind, but will be about security in Europe, that that is advanced, that they reach that point eventually when they come to that kind of... that they, that they reach that kind of 
arrangement with the United States. It won't be with the Europeans. It will be directly with the United States, that is agency, and which they hope will finally come to understand what its own interests in Europe really are. Yeah, I mean, and, and if Trump gets elected, uh, that'd be the kind of deal that Trump would like to yeah. do. And, uh, Trump would like credit for that deal, but also he wants peace. Uh, the it, it would be very achievable. It would make sense for Putin to see if Trump can get elected or someone of that mindset, but that that particularly Trump, uh, who will be in a position to cut that deal and Russiagate and the rest no longer restraining or restricting him mm-hmm. in ways that I think now he regrets that it restricted and restrained him in his first term, as we've seen the disaster in the Ukrainian conflict. It also explains why the neoliberals and uh, neocons are shifting to the Middle East. Uh, be, I mean, the the, yeah, the bitterness of that wing of the State Department and the military-industrial complex and the intelligence community. I mean, some of the war people don't mind because they can find another war to sell their weapons. Uh, the Ukrainian conflict has not been a great advertiser for defense manufacturers in the West. <laughs> There's a lot of weapons that were game changers that turned out not to change much of the game at all. And that's not good advertising if that's uh, if that's your product you're selling to countries and nations around the world. Uh, but the but for the state, you know, the the the, the you know the certain people are, are just going to go absolutely berserk mm-hmm. at the idea of a Trump-Putin global deal that's Yalta too. Uh, you know, that 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 will drive them sort of insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the neocon Nikkis of the world, so the war Karens. But the uh, but it explains why some of them shift to the Middle East. The thing in the Middle East is in the State Department and the Democrats, they have kind of a split. There's the domestic political split on the issue, uh, but the uh, though that's always going to generally come out pro-Israel over time. But in the State Department, you have the old Arabist influence, mm. the neoliberals mm. uh, that go back to the Brits. You know, they go back to you know, Kim Philby's father. Remember, mm-hmm. thought he was going to be you know leading the Greater Arabia, the number one ally, right mm-hmm. next to the uh, the. The, the, the king there uh, in, in the post Ottoman Empire world, uh, the, uh, you know, they, they all, you know, they all read Lawrence of Arabia. A lot of your like Kermit Roosevelt's, your young CIA guys, they were all a lot like the MI6 guys, you know, mm-hmm. for whom old, uh, you know, the, the, the post coup pre Ayatollah Iran was their ideal government in the Middle East. Right. You know, the, uh, they, they thought that was, they thought the Shah was the greatest thing ever. I mean, they helped put him there, helped keep him there for a while. Uh, you know, tricked him into thinking the queen wanted him to stay <laughs> and some other things that have become famous stories over time. But you have that and it confuses the heck out of American political observers because they don't. It's like, why is there this perceived sympathy with Iran mixed in with uh, hawkishness towards Iran? It, it doesn't quite make sense. And that's because there is this neoliberal Arabist wing that has been on, on within the State Department and the CIA and the intelligence apparatus, actually anti-Israel from the very inception. Uh, we go back and read some, you read some of the British mandate stuff. I mean, they went back and forth on who they were going to side with. One minute they're going to side with the Jewish population. Next minute they're siding with the Arabs and they're siding with the Jews and they're siding with the Arabs. The uh, uh, all kinds of conspiracy allegations about them, their participation in instigating conflicts between the two. In, in, in the region. There's, so there's that State Department split between the neo who, who are skeptical of Israel, who are very strong in the Biden administration. And then you have the traditional uh, more neocons that are very pro-Israel, uh, 
Uh, some of them are more you want to use Israel as a wedge in the Middle Eastern world to be able to conquer the rest of the uh, of Arabia uh, in their old on their own way. Not so much always with the alignment of Arabian interests, but often uh, without those you know interests being present domestically, politically. The uh, the anti-Israeli vote in America is always going to be pretty small. So you've got the pal- you've got a small Arab Palestinian population, mostly in Dearborn, Michigan, Rashid Tlaib, Tlaib's congressional district. Uh, but otherwise, you know, and so in Michigan's a swing state. But uh, otherwise, it's uh, the the Jewish vote is about double what the Arab or Muslim vote is in the United States. There is the old Jewish left that was anti-Zionist from day one. And so consequently to this day, some of the biggest anti-Israeli voices are Jewish voices, which also confuses people now and then. But that's the old Jewish left from the beginning of Zionism that was opposed to the idea of an Israel uh, existence. Uh, That's part of it. And some of it comes from their hard left associations uh, to various degrees. Uh, But people like Chomsky have been anti-Israel pretty much as soon as Israel chose the U.S. in the Cold War. Uh, and then you've got the hard left, uh, the activist left, uh, mostly your Zoomers, uh, some millennials on college campuses that are have been anti-Israel since they rejected the Soviet Union from an ancestral ideological perspective. But, you know, those, they, they have influence on college campuses. They have influences in some places. They're, in, you know, the. They, they their voice is represented in the Jimmy Doors and and others uh, to a degree. I mean, he's not as extreme as some of them are, um, but you know the the Aaron Mates, the Max Blumenthal's, the a lot of them represent that ideological strain on the left of being anti-Israel, and then uh, or if you want to call it pro-Palestinian, label it however you want. The uh, uh, and then but that voting group is tiny, and in representative power is tiny. Uh, the it, on the other side, you have uh, Jewish voters for whom the issue of Israel is existential, uh, particularly amongst uh, Orthodox Jews, who are a minority of Jews in America, but amongst a lot of moderate to liberal Democratic Jews for whom uh, of older generations, boomers and Gen X in particular, uh, for whom Israel is an existential question. Um, and then you have evangelical Christians. Who I, I get a kick out of, you know, Michael Tracy and, and 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 Glenn Greenwald, God bless them. They're always trying to understand where does this evangelical and they and they come up with some crazy theories, like oh, it's a prophetic theory. There, there's there's a small strain within evangelical Christianity that believes Israel is the beginning of the second coming and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. That has almost nothing to do with Israel's support amongst evangelical Christians mm-hmm. politically in America. Having grown up in that community, it is simply because Israel has done it goes very politically smart. Well, whatever you like, dislike about Israel, politically, when they took over, they have protected evangelical Christian access to what Christians consider their holy land. I mean, there's a reason for the Crusades, right? I mean, the historically, uh, I understand Crusades in today's politically correct uh, terminology, you know, the imperial, colonial, whatever. Uh, I did love the British fans who showed up at the World Cup in Qatar and didn't realize that wearing crusade outfits might not be the appropriate outfit for the setting. But the... Uh, uh, but it's because historically, when the uh, what Christians understand as the Holy Land has been under the jurisdiction of uh, Muslim powers, they have not had the same degree of access that they have had under Israel. Indeed, to be quite frank, Israel was more generous to Christian access to Israeli properties and land that are affiliated with the Christian tradition than Christians have historically been towards the Jewish population if you go back over a longer time period. 
Uh, so there's strong sympathy within the evangelical Christian community with Israel for that reason. And mm. uh, you have some older generations that like Israel because they sided with the U.S. right in the Soviet Union in the Cold War. I mean, it was probably one of the most brilliant tactical political decisions made. People forget Soviet Union was the first to recognize Israel. Uh, I mean, Stalin really believed Israel was going to be in, uh, on their side or at least not uh, aligned uh, in the way that, you know, the rest of the Arab countries, you know, became part of the unaligned and so forth later. But, you know, that decision uh, it built them a lot of good faith in a lot of communities in the United States. And then you have what I would call the geopolitical realist. Now, Israel is the one topic that I have found that it's almost 90 percent of people lose their minds because they're either so pro-Israel or so anti-Israel that people that you otherwise are like, hey, that I'll get an honest, objective geopolitical analysis from this person. Whatever they think about, you know, I won't get so much filters that I get wishful thinking substituting for strategic analysis like we got on the Western side about almost every place in the West on Ukraine. But God bless him. Like even Colonel McGregor, you know, he's talking about Iran and Turkey are going to get together and they're going to wage war in Israel. I'm like, uh, as, as you pointed out, Alexander, uh, the, nobody who follows Erdogan actually takes his words, you know, like he's going to, you know, he's going to do, 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 do. But, you know, he wants little skirmishes. He, in Iran, whatever you think of him is not, is not that level of insanity that they actually want a direct conflict right now with Israel. They're, they're not in a position for that for a range of reasons. They don't mind what you know has happened in terms of derailing certain Israeli-Saudi efforts quite clearly, but that's quite different than actually going to war with them. So I mean, Mearsheimer and the and then you have like people like Scott Horton, you know, the uh, who like I think the anti-war, anti-establishment left in America that's very anti-Israel is elevating Israel to such that issue uh, to such a degree that they're burning bridges with the best anti-establishment populist left candidate, anti-war, anti-deep state left in the history of the United States, or at least the modern history, and Robert Kennedy. So you have like Scott Horton running around saying that Robert Kennedy has lost his entire field team because he's pro-Israel. And I'm like, well, since I'm working with a lot of those people because they're going to try to keep Robert Kennedy off the ballot, there's a long history of that in America trying to keep independent candidates off the ballot. They tend to change the rules right after an independent succeeds in the name of keeping frivolous candidates off the ballot. Uh, I've won a lot of those cases and, and will win them for the same for Robert Kennedy. But I knew that like almost nobody had left. I was like, I know there were a couple of people that were, were anti-Israel who are no longer part, but they're a tiny percentage. And I was like, why is Horton saying this? And then he's like anything about Israel. It's like, it, it's, like it's like, whoa, it's like you either got to be Ben Shapiro crazy or you got to be, you know, you know, all of a sudden explaining why Ben Laden's letter is a, is a very understandable and explain like yeah, some of these TikTokers do it. I was like, I'm going to tell you, if you're on the Palestinian side, just word of the wise, don't be citing bin Laden as your source if you want to get people in America to like it. Just, just, just an idea, just a thought. Uh, so in the American political parlance, it's not because there's some secret Israeli lobby and all that. I mean, I'm sure the, you know, the, the live chat's going to fill up with people asking me when I'm going to get my Jew check. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, check, I'll check in the mail and see when they're sending me the cash. But, the, uh, but the, just the nature of American politics is, is, is uh, the Palestinian cause was not likely to ever be popular in a broader range of the American public than Israel. Now, that does not mean you have people who want to get involved in the conflict, right? There's a, two very big differences between, okay, if you ask me Israel or Hamas with nuclear weapons, who do I prefer? It's not going to be Hamas. You know, mm. Sorry. 
Uh, but the on the flip side, if you ask me, do I want U.S. troops there? That doesn't even make sense. All that's going to do is cause more collateral problems. It's not going to necessarily help Israel whatsoever. That doesn't mean that going in and just just uh, like uh, I, I'm skeptical of this whole reoccupation of Gaza. I mean, uh, I mean, with a with a political regime that lives off of what I call victim porn. Um, in, in the case of of Hamas, then you give them what you want, what they want by going in there and, and attacking the places they're attacking. I don't think they can achieve militarily the political re objective that they seek. In fact, they're going to give Hamas what they want by giving them the, the, the things that on, on every Arab and Muslim media TV station can have little kids suffering horrible things. And I understand there's legal justifications and rationalizations within the war structure about, yes, can you target something that has dual use? Russia has done so in Ukraine. Ukraine has done so to Russia. I'm not disputing that, but I'm disputing whether or not it's smart tactically to choose those particular paths, given that you have a large part of the Arab Muslim world and large parts of the global south that are looking for an excuse to be anti-Israel at this mm -hmm. precise moment. So I'm hoping they're more restrained uh, than they've been so far. But when people ask me, what do I think is going to be the domestic political fallout? It's mostly that the, the, the neoliberals and the neocons can't agree on Israel within the Biden administration. That will be a constant source of tension and conflict. That's what You'll see them like on China. One day one way, next day another way. One day one way, next day another way. I mean, they'll, they'll go back and forth with contradictory messages out of the Biden administration. It'll be a disaster, like everything else has been a disaster. Uh, but domestically, politically, outside of your hardcore Democratic activist communities and some influencers who are willing to burn bridges with Robert Kennedy over Israel, I mean, the Kennedy support to Israel it goes back to his father, goes back to his uncle. I mean, the, the Kennedy liberal embrace of Israel is very simple. They saw it as a to religiously tolerant place for victims of the Holocaust to recreate a sanctuary in the modern world. And they've respected the way Israel operates and governs ever since. Hmm. The Kennedys are deeply aligned with Israel. So, and my question to those people that are anti-Israel is, are you willing to burn bridges to a guy whose voice is up, like you agree with him on 90% of the issues on anti-war, anti-deep state, anti-national security state, all those things over Israel? Why is it that, is Israel the one issue worth, worth destroying those coalitions over? I don't think it is in the United States. But politically, the pro-Israel side will almost always prevail for those reasons, whether people like it or dislike it. Uh, the question is whether Trump could put together what what could he, you know, it's easy to see what his path could be to recreate peace in Russia and Ukraine is. Yeah. He he already knows what Putin wants. He's already willing to accept most of it. So uh, there uh, he could put back into into the train the operation he had with North Korea that could lead to different resolutions in terms of de-escalation of China. He's never been for military conflict with China. He's been for protecting America's economic borders with China. And China's got its own internal real estate uh, domestic issues that it's trying to fix economically in the, in the middle of all this anyway. I don't know if, I thought the Abraham Accord strategy was a smart strategy. You know, to use appeal to the royals in, in, the, in the Middle East who want to, create investment for their countries, want to create tourism for their countries, that, hey, you don't want to be a so, you don't want Allah Akbar to be a line in a movie that comes right before something blows up, right? You, you, you want it to be a much more positive symbol. And one way to achieve that is to achieve a peace accord uh, with Israel. That's obviously blown up by all of this. Uh, I don't know how easy it will be to put back together what he thought he could achieve in the Middle East.
uh, if he gets back in. Though it depends on what happens between now and Election Day in terms of the risk the U.S. Biden administration just almost accidentally escalates somewhere in the Middle East. Because I don't think, I think you're right, Alexander, I don't see Turkey or Iran escalating at this juncture. Absolutely not. Now, lots of things again, Robert, lots lots of things to go through. Let, let's, let's... Alexander, I'll address uh discuss uh, all, all of uh, the issues that Robert brought up. And after this, uh, Robert Alexander, Spain. Let's, Spain. yes, let's oh, yeah, pivot yeah, to yeah, Spain yeah, as yeah, well, because I, a, lot I, of, I, a lot of I, people I, want to talk about Spain. I, well. Absolutely. So, Can I just go I, ahead? I, I just I, want to I, bring I, it up before we close out the show. Yeah, I, I have definitely. a personal beef on the subject yeah, of Spain. Okay, so I'm particularly go, go ahead. But anyway, let's let's go through these things. Let's tick them off one by one. Now, let's, well, not tick them all off one, but let's just talk a few things. Let's start with Robert Kennedy. First of all, you're absolutely correct. I, My very earliest memories, political memories, as I've said to many people many times, especially of events outside Greece, I was a little boy then, was a Robert Kennedy. I mean, he was, he was somebody I remember. I can remember the day that he was assassinated and the effect it had on people in Greece and the sort of sense of depression and shock that people had. And one of the things I already knew about Robert Kennedy at that time this is, you know, a little, little boy was that he was pro-Israel. <laughs> it was something everybody knew. I mean, it was something that everybody took for granted. This was, you know, just after the 1967 Six-Day War. He was supporting delivery of phantom fighter jets to Israel because France had imposed an arms embargo on Israel. You're absolutely correct. This is the tradition in the Kennedy family and RFK Jr. is simply following in that tradition. Now, all my political life, I have known people do this. My aunt has always, again, I go, I go back to her because she was the most astute politician I have ever known. And she instructed me a lot about politics. <laughs> you will always find somebody who will say to you, I will vote for you. I agree with you on absolutely everything, but there's one thing I don't agree with you on. And for that reason, I'm not going to vote for you. Now, if you do that, if you do that with every single political leader that you come across by a process of elimination, you're not going to end up with none because it is impossible for two human beings to agree with each other on absolutely everything. If people feel so strongly about Robert Kennedy's views on Israel, and it's very simple, they don't want to vote for him, that's their business. Why don't they go and stand for election themselves and see where that takes them? Because that's how, that the reality is, and I just want to say this, what the position people are taking, you agree with somebody on absolutely everything. You agree with their economic policy, their foreign policy. You think that the state of the world, this condition of world peace is so important that you're going to support this person, only you're not because you disagree with him with one thing. That is not politics. That is not a mature political position. That is what my aunt always used to tell me. If you are in that kind of mindset, then you are not being serious about how politics is conducted. You have to put aside your own feelings, look at the larger picture, say to yourself, is this somebody I trust to follow my particular agenda, to advance my interests, to secure 
the interests of my country and my nation and to secure the peace of the world. If you think that, then you vote for him. If you're going to argue with him on some particular topic, and it may be any one of a number of things that you feel very strongly about, well, then you're obviously going to be in a minority. And perhaps, as my aunt always used to tell me, well, in that case, perhaps you should stand for election yourself because there is, you're not going to find, you're not going to find any other way to advance your cause than by doing that. So I think, as I said, this is ridiculous. And by the way, I've been looking, I've been looking at the opinion polls in the United States, and I can't see myself. And I have to say this, I mean, you know, I'm not perhaps an expert in examining polls, but I haven't seen that this this has so far made any dent in Robert Kennedy's standing at all. And the reason is I'm sure that there are people who disagree with Robert Kennedy about this issue, but who still support him, because as far as they're concerned, he is the person who they trust to move the things that they, uh, to advance the, the other things, the very other important other things that they care about. Now, about the Middle East, this has been a problem that has existed all my lifetime. It's not going to be solved anytime soon. My own view about this is well known. I have never for one moment believed that Iran, Turkey, Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia were ever going to do any of the dramatic and drastic things that people talked about. I've always said that Turkey, that Erdogan, in my opinion, he talks, he blusters all this time. I think it's actually working against his interests, actually. I think he's gone too far. I think he's opening himself up to criticism in Turkey from people who are saying, well, you talk in this way, but where's the action? And I think it's it's actually probably done Erdogan some damage. But I never thought that Turkey was going to go to war. <laughs> I think that's a fantastic idea. I don't know where that idea has come from. The Iranians are absolutely not going to go to war. I said this in a program on... Um, X spaces where there was Vivek, by the way, and Elon Musk and Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis. It was right at the start of this conflict. They were all worried and they were saying, you know, is this thing going to escalate or are all these Arab and Muslim countries going to take all this dramatic action? I said they are not. They don't want to get involved in a war. They are concerned to prevent this situation escalating out of control. And um, they're going to look for diplomatic uh, uh, steps that they can take forward, which will advance their interests. The only people who want war in the Middle East, that big regional, all expansive war in the Middle East, who want to set the whole of the Middle East in flames, they're not... In Ter well, there may be some people in Tehran, but they're not primarily in Tehran. They're not even with Hezbollah. They're certainly not to be found in Ankara, where, as I said, uh, um, Erdogan's words are all bluster. They're to be found amongst a very powerful, very dangerous neocon faction in Washington that wants war wherever it can find it and wants to expand war wherever it can. And I, for one, personally, am very worried about all these massive American military deployments in the Middle East. They are beyond anything that you would need to deter. I don't believe that 
that kind of deterrence anyway is necessary. And I think that they're a very dangerous temptation for some very dangerous people in Washington that they might be looking for excuses to use it. Anyway, that's what I want to say about that. Secondly, thirdly, the thing I want to say is this. In my opinion, we come back to the problems with the current administration. They have not handled the diplomacy of this crisis at all well. We've had Blinken wandering around the Middle East, having the door slammed in his face. We've had Biden wandering around the Middle East. And the Arab leaders don't want to speak to him. It's been very difficult for him to even speak to Arab leaders over the phone, which perhaps is not a bad thing, actually, given how he conducts himself when he is in summit meetings. But anyway, they don't want to talk with him. And instead, because the United States is not getting ahead, is not looking for practical, viable solutions to this particular uh, crisis, or indeed to the long-term crisis, they're opening a space for others to step in. And we see that the Chinese, and in this case, the Russians, who are working with the Chinese on this matter, they are beginning to get ahead of the United States in the diplomacy in the Middle East. And that might be a good thing. It may not be a bad thing at all. But if you are concerned about America's position of power, the, the influence of the United States in the Middle East, then perhaps you're entitled to be concerned that you're losing the diplomatic game to the Chinese and the Russians. Now, that brings me to the next point. And this is, again, something which I think most people outside the Middle East have not understood about this crisis at all. Yes, people in the Muslim world are very angry about what is going on in Gaza. And there's lots and lots of complaints about that. But when you go to the level of governments, they, one, do not like Hamas. You won't find a single Arab government, apart perhaps to some extent from Qatar, that likes Hamas. Egypt is fighting the Muslim Brotherhood inside Egypt itself. Saudi Arabia uh, hates the Muslim Brotherhood. They know perfectly well that it is connected to Hamas. Syria, the Syrian government fought Hamas in Syria. They were supporting the insurgency against Bashar al-Assad. Hezbollah fought these people in Syria. Putin hates Muslim insurgents. He fought them in the Northern Caucasus. The Chinese hate Muslim insurgents. They're fighting them in their own country also. None of these people like uh, uh, um, you know, what Hamas represents. And if you're talking about Iran, they are absolutely furious because Hamas did this thing on the 7th of October and people have been extremely unwilling to face up to what Hamas did on the 7th of October, by the way. But anyway, Hamas did that without consulting Iran. So Iran's found itself facing this enormous crisis and they weren't told. They weren't asked, you know, they were asked in advance, do you think we should do this thing? Now, a clever administration, a skillful administration, one attuned to the realities of the Middle East, understanding these feelings amongst the Arab and Muslim leaders, 
would have built on that and would have uh, um, succeeded in taking it forward and would have addressed the concerns that exist both about Gaza and about the security of Israel and by the way about you know the security that Jewish people feel around the world also which should not be overlooked they would have addressed this thing they would have capitalized on this fact about you know this the general unpopularity of Hamas the massive embarrassment that an anger with it that Iran and Qatar its financial backer feel and they would have found a way but of course this had been and I, I've discussed on many channels in our programs on the Duran what that way sort of things that they might have done and the kind of things that they could have done which would have worked out better but of course they didn't understand that they didn't have any grasp of this expecting the Blinken Sullivan Biden grouping to conduct this kind of nimble diplomacy in the Middle East attuned to the realities of the Middle East is a completely hopeless and worthless exercise I think Donald Trump would have been a lot better at it, actually, in spite of what people say. And, I mean, after all, he gets on with the Arab leaders. He likes the Saudis. They like him. He likes the Egyptians. They like him. Um, I actually think that Robert Kennedy, who comes from a family with a long tradition in diplomacy, would probably have handled it better also, a lot better, given his background, his experience, his knowledge of the world, which he possesses. He speaks foreign languages. He knows Europe. He knows how to conduct diplomacy. I think he'd have done a much better job in spite of the things that he has said, which people have taken umbrage about, and which, to be frank, I think they're, um, you know, as you correctly said, they're, they're missing the picture over them. So that's that's my view. That is my overall view about this particular crisis. It could have been handled much more skillfully. It could have been done in a way that would have enhanced the position of the Middle East. And that didn't happen. And the result is that all sorts of players are now moving in. The Chinese, who do understand diplomacy, are moving in. The, the Russians, of course, are always there. Remember the Russians? They talk to the Israelis as well. Putin has been speaking with Netanyahu. Lavrov has been speaking with Eli Cohen. There may be strong words exchanged between them at the Security Council, but they keep they they keep the communication lines open, and that should not be underestimated. So they're able to talk. Everybody's able to talk. The Americans, for the moment, are not, and that's one of the reasons, by the way that you're getting all of these different factions within the State Department, in the, in, within the DNC and the, all of that. They're beginning to, uh, you know, appear and fight for their various positions because they're not getting a convincing and strong lead from the president and from his administration. You asked me once upon a time, um, Robert, whether there was any administration I could think of, any U.S. administration, worse than this one. I can now conclusively and definitely answer that question. No, I cannot. You have to go back to Patrick Buchanan, perhaps, on the eve of the American Civil War to find an administration that is as bad 
I wouldn't say that even that administration was worse. Now, speaking of geopolitical uh, bad tactics, the uh, you know, I remember years ago when the whole uh, I was familiar with the Bosque revel, you know, independence mm-hmm. movement. I mean, they have a whole DNA history that's totally distinct from everybody around them. Fascinating little part of the world. I've had some clients that hung out in Andorra for a range of reasons. There's certain benefits to Andorra that uh, don't need uh, more detail here. But the uh, but I was unaware of until some years ago the whole Catalonian independence. You know, I'd been to Barcelona, been to Madrid. You know, I figured out uh, I figured out that where all of uh, Franco's ex-soldiers went to, uh, they become waiters in Spanish uh, high-end restaurants. Uh, my brother uh, once asked for a coffee midday and explained that was wrong, and the waiter was like, "No, no, you cannot have it." No, but the uh, but you know, but I didn't know this whole Catalonian independence movement, and then you get like suddenly a, a referendum. And you're like, oh, hold on a second. So you, you can just hold a referendum and declare yourself a new country? Mm. How is this going to work out? Mm. And I remember Julian Assange was covering it and I guess got in trouble with the Ecuadorians uh, in part because of him covering the Catalonian independence movement. And that seemed to create this bridge where people on the what I would call the anti-establishment, anti-war left, or for some reason embraced the mm. Catalonian cause, which I found kind of odd. Um, the The... But, you know, the and then now it's culminated six years later. A lot of what you said all the way back has come to fruition that that was not a tactically geopolitically smart move to make, that it's now backfired. But the socialist uh, uh, or the left loses the election. And so they have to cut a deal to pardon everybody connected to it. And it's now perceived in parts of the Western press and in Spain as a, uh, a coup because they lost the election yet they're going to be back in power because they're giving a sweetheart deal to the former Catalonian rebels who had to flee the country because of their illicit activities. Um, the uh, Tucker Carlson, once again, you know, he shows up with Malay in Argentina and now he's showing up over in the middle of the Spanish protest mm-hmm. uh, platform. These are things he probably couldn't have fully platformed if he was still stuck in, at Fox, if he could be siloed by Paul Ryan in ways that, you know, he's more free now than he was before, especially facilitated by uh, Musk owning uh, X. But what the what are your thoughts on uh, all of this? Uh, I mean, I haven't followed anywhere near in detail as you have, mm-hmm. and you know, the and a lot of the things you said then have come to fruition. But what struck me about all of it was the lack of geopolitical realism mm-hmm. by people who substituted wishful thinking for good strategy like we saw in bad Ukrainian analysis, like we've seen in both sides of the Israeli conflict, seem like that's part of what really happened here. Uh, People made tactically bad decisions because they wanted something to be so that wasn't so. And now we're getting all the political fallout from it. But what leads to, I mean, is is Spain going to be able to establish this government? Is it going to be a popular overthrow? What what do you think is going to happen? I think it's going to be a major political and uh, a legitimacy crisis in Spain for the very simple reason that uh, uh, of what you said. This is a government that lost the election. The, uh, um, the Socialist Party lost the election in Spain. And nonetheless, they have kept themselves in power by cutting a deal with people who tried, well, who acted illegally, contrary to the constitution of Spain, and sought to secede a part of Spain from Spain. Now, this is... An astonishing thing. This is a terrible thing to happen. And of course, people are angry. And many of the people who voted for the socialists are also angry because during the election, Sanchez, the current Spanish prime minister, 
promised the Spanish people, including many of the people who voted for him, that he would never do the very thing that he has just done. I mean, it, it is difficult to convey how ugly this is. Um, if he cannot form a coalition because he can't get the votes without going into um, alliance with Puigdemont and his group, which is one of tiny group now in Catalonia, that he should not make former government. I mean, th this would be a situation where the right thing to do would be to call a new election. <laughs> it's it's defies reason and logic and Spanish interests and democratic interests for the government of Spain to do this thing. And of course, people in Spain are extremely angry. And this is a country which has worked very, very hard since um, Franco's death to build up political stability. And it's probably still to some extent a work in progress. And this creates lots of problems and tensions in Spain. And, you know, I would not personally be surprised if before long it becomes clear that this is unsustainable, that the protests begin to gain some degree of uh, political, uh, a critical mass. Um, there is concerns then expressed within the government that this is simply not possible, and in which case the government collapses and we will get uh, um, an election in Spain at which point there will be presumably a landslide for the right-wing parties, which many people expected would in fact be forming the government of Spain now. Anyway, that's that's where we are today. I just wanted to say a few things about the situation in Catalonia. I think one of the great problems is that a lot of people understand the issues of Spain very much still, taking them from the sort of framework, the romantic view of the um, Spanish Civil War, and also the fact that Barcelona, as you absolutely rightly say, is an extremely attractive, very cultural place, very attractive place. It's a wonderful place if you've been there. And, you know, they've all read George Orwell's book, or many of them on the left have done George Orwell's book, Homage to Catalonia and all of this. The reality was that this, this grouping this, this, this group of people, this, this party that gained power in Catalonia and which held that referendum acted entirely unconstitutionally and illegally. They did it without agreeing this with the Spanish government. They were trying to organize a secession knowing full well that the Spanish government at that time was strongly opposed to it, knowing also that there was by no means overwhelming support within Catalonia itself for secession. And when they conducted that ref referendum, risked very considerable political violence in, this, in, in Catalonia itself. Now, I made that point at the time. I was strongly opposed at the time to the moves that this particular uh, party was making. And again, I came from all the same kind of criticism from all the same sort of people that, you know, criticize these things because as I said, they think that, you know, Catalonia should be independent. Perhaps one day it 
should be independent. But this is this is absolutely not the correct way to do it, and certainly not led by people like this. Uh, strong arm, strong arming independence in that kind of way. And what has happened since then is that the Spanish government acted decisively to break the power of this party. They brought uh, legal action against the leaders, which under the Spanish law, they were entitled, indeed under a duty to take. The people in Catalonia themselves understood that what had been done by this party was wrong and its support collapsed. So we are talking about a relatively small group within Catalonia that Sanchez has now given an amnesty to and in effect anchored his coalition upon against the will of the Spanish people. I think this is an unbelievably reckless thing. And it tells us once again that when people talk about populists, because of course much of the criticism of the right in Spain, the right-wing parties in Spain that were uh, uh, seeking to win the election and to establish a new government. When people talk about populists being the people who threaten democracy, it's those who oppose the populists more often than not who are democracy's real enemies because there is nothing democratic about what we have just seen. Uh, uh, is it fair to conclude that uh, Biden will not be coming to the rescue anytime soon? <laughs> well, I think if he does come to the rescue, then all I can say is poor Spain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Spain will be broken up then. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, Sanchez, if I may say, say so, is a complete um, pillar of the European EU establishment. That is what this is all about. There are critics of that establishment on the political right in Spain. The party, Puigdemont and his group, by the way, are fervid supporters of the EU. I mean, one of their ideas was we split away from Spain and we join the EU as Catalonia. And there were people, I remember there was a time when, you know, the uh, EU itself was talking about, you know, the EU being supporting the regions. They would never, they never really liked sovereign states or governments. So, uh, you know, supporting the regions, and you could, you could start see the connections that were happening. Spain's influence and the influence of other countries, like France, for example, which also has, uh, does not want to see these sort of policies be uh, enacted, meant that in the end, the EU had to swerve course. But the, the the commission, the bureaucracy in Brussels, at one point was sort of edging towards being rather supportive of what was going on in Catalonia, as I well remember. But anyway, that's another story. Um, Sanchez is a fervid supporter of the EU system. The EU does not want to see various right-wing parties come to power in Spain. And this that is what this is all about. They would rather see a deal done with Catalonian separatists and risk the political stability of Spain than allow an opening to anti-EU forces in Spain itself. Well, fellas, what do you say? Let's wrap this one up. 
Mm. We covered a lot of uh, mm. of ground. Mm. Two Absolutely. hours, two I mean, hours and twenty two minutes. Wow. It'd be a perfect time, you know. People who ask, it's uh, Hunter Thompson's "Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail" from nineteen seventy two is the book mm. behind me. Uh, I was thinking that you know it feels like a fear and loathing era. If Hunter Thompson, this was, this time was tailor made yeah. uh, for Hunter Thompson to write mm. about, it seems. I mean, there's so many topics, so many ways, so many means, so many methods. Uh, the only question is, you know, does uh, you know basic humanitarian principles uh, survive this assault from these professional managerial class? bureaucracies, whether in the EU, whether in the State Department, whether the American deep state, whether uh, in the in in parts of Britain, wherever it may be, uh, at least uh, the the hopeful part of the Argentine election, however people perceive him, mm. is that it showed the power of the people to overthrow a corrupt administration and at least the hope that maybe something different can come about. Uh, we'll see if the I mean, the American public wants the same thing to happen with Trump. So we'll see if, but uh, if we can make it to 2025, will be the question in the interim. Absolutely, a lot of elections in 2024, yeah. guys. A lot of uh, elections. Yeah, I miss Hunter Thompson. I should say, Blue, Blue Sky says I read that book back in the day. Wow, maybe mm. time to read it again. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. All right, the great Robert Barnes. Where can people find you, Mister Barnes? Yeah, they, if they want to, if they want a late Thanksgiving gift, other than the Duran shop where I got this, they can also go to uh, vivabarnslaw.locals.com, pinned towards the top, uh, the great Amish farmer, Amos Miller, if you live in the United States. Uh, you can get some of his great apple butter. It's being used as a fundraiser for Free America Law Center that supports Amos Miller's right to farm outside of the FDA and USDA trying to shut it down. Brooke Jackson's big case against Pfizer and the COVID vaccine and how dangerous it is, is has been disclosed about the AstraZeneca vaccine, a so-called vaccine in Europe, uh, so that you can support those kind of cases. And if you just want any and all the content, or if you just want to troll, you just have to pay the toll, you can do so at vivabarnslaw.locals.com. And I will have that as a pinned comment down below. Robert Barnes, Alexander Mercuris, to all our moderators, thank you very much. And everyone that was watching us on the Duran.locals.com, Rockfin Odyssey, Rumble, and YouTube. Take care, everybody.